Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ift-Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by our former co-host in exile, now returning to confront the demons of his past, Ollie Brady. Ollie, welcome. I'm back to take over the podcast, Sarah. I'm here to challenge you to one-on-one combat. Uh, see, well, actually, you're in America, so... But I have the gauntlets. You probably also have guns. <laughs> the podcast gauntlets. Let's face it. Let's the face famous it. podcast gauntlets. In the length of time it would take me to get to Memphis, you could run down to the local 7-Eleven and pick up a fucking submachine gun, so... Oh, clearly. Uh, yeah. I live so in Tennessee. <laughs> that's what I mean. It's, <laughs> it's not going to, it's not going to end well for me. Um, Sarah, it's great to be back. Uh, uh, we were just talking beforehand, just a little, little peek behind the curtain, a little parting of the kimono, as they say. Um, wait, ooh, that's a dodge. Um, do we say that? I'm not sure <laughs> we say that. I say that all the time, and I think every time I do, you go, that's not a phrase, Ollie. Okay. A, that's not a phrase, and B, it seems like it might be kind of racist. No, I, I it's not racist. <laughs> I'm but just the saying. idea is that I'm parting my kimono. Like, what am I wearing underneath? Am I a flasher? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but um, we were just saying is that the last episode we did on Vox Machina was three, almost three hours long. So we'll, yes, we'll try and, and keep it done. I also can't help but notice that the last three or four times I've been on the podcast I've been talking about Dungeons and Dragons related stuff which uh, you have never played Dungeons and never Dragons never played the game <laughs> <laughs> I like that we've like really actually consistently kept to this that we've had like a lot of Dungeons and Dragons episodes that have like generally not involved people who have like played Dungeons and Dragons at any yeah. point like because Tracy hadn't either had she no I don't think she has Um, she's <laughs> I th- yeah I think she the closest she, she came played like reading. a like Jane didn't she do like a Jane Austen like role play which is like the same like kind of mechanics yeah I mean I but like nobody is shocked that Tracy played a, a Jane Austen role play thing. of course we, of course she did I'm, I'm surprised she's not she wasn't dressing as Jane Austen right there and then as we were recording um Sarah what are you, you said you're a medieval historian and I used to ask this at the start of every episode well what got you into uh, medieval history well, I first got reading about medieval history because of actually a family trip to England and uh, uh, kind of started in the Middle Ages and never really left the Middle Ages, uh, but did eventually abandon England because I realized that Spain has better weather and better food. So now I study the Western Mediterranean instead. And when you were a little girl and you were dreaming about doing medieval, sorry, medieval studies and being a historian, did you ever think to yourself, someday I'll get to talk about cartoon characters saying fuck and uh, trying to seduce their own daughters i thought about that all the time yes constantly (laughs) i assumed as much sarah have you ever written any books about medieval history i have i have written two books which have now been published i have a survey and source book called jewish women in the medieval world 500 to 1500 and I also have my first scholarly monograph, which is called The Fruit of Her Hands, Jewish and Christian Women's Work in Medieval Catalan Cities, both published in 2022. Go buy my books. I mean, or yeah. don't. The second one is like $100. But, the second one is know. very expensive. And Sarah, 
will admit that I am in fact like her best friend in the whole world. And I didn't buy that one. Um, and I, yeah, no, not, buy it. I am not a poor man. And I still chose not to buy that one. That's the book that like, I, I think like 45 libraries bought and that's fine. Yeah. Listen, or wait, it, no, I actually got the summary. I know exactly how many, yeah, I, I need to ooh. find it. But I somewhere actually have the summary of exactly how many copies of the book were sold. Let's if see. I buy one, Sarah, while well, you're looking that up and then post it to you, will you sign it and then send it back to me? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. 85. I, mean, that... I sold 85 copies. 85 copies is really good. <laughs> truly, um, truly, I am a, like, I'm practically a New York Times bestseller. And have you ever been tempted to put it as like prescribed reading for your course? Okay, I actually am not, I actually am assigning um, not the expensive one, but the cheaper one. <laughs> next semester i feel like i'm maybe being a dick but the re it's like a book that the reason i wrote it was specifically because there's nothing comparable for teaching purposes yeah and it's a lot of sources that i translated that are not otherwise available in translation and my students don't have the language skills for them yeah no that makes sense that makes sense and for me i just like watching people stab each other in the face and uh, i like learning about really cool and definitely real uh, historical events and practices like yes these are all specific historical events that take yeah. place in this fantasy show where people say fuck a lot well in this particular one it's not sarah but i do love learning about things like prima nocta which as we all know um was a real thing um and I literally was so much real yesterday it, it was so real that you have actually had to correct me on how it's pronounced and how the phrase should be formed the fact that there is a Latin terminology does not make it real. I think Grammar our, exists aside, apart from reality. I think a lot of our listeners are at home right now going, I don't know, Sarah, seems like the fact that there's a Latin version of this word would suggest it did exist. I literally taught, uh, I taught the, I taught the elderly about this yesterday. Ooh, mm-hmm. why, wait, why were you teaching the elderly, Sarah? Uh, there we have at Rhodes this thing called the Maiman Center for Lifelong Learning. And uh, mostly I do classes like on the Rhodes campus uh, or we have like a remote option as well. And it's like some people from the community and some alumni, but basically they partnered with uh, some local senior centers. So I was, uh, I did a class at one of the local senior centers um, about what you can learn about medieval history through uh, thinking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail and what it gets right and wrong. <laughs> That's so cool. I wish I could teach a course about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but mm. I'm not sure if there's enough physics in there to, to be able to, to have No, there probably it. isn't. But yeah, so we watched the, uh, the clip with the, uh, the constitutional peasant scene and I talked about the, you know, what was real and not in terms of the kind of history of uh, abuses of peasantry. Hmm. I wonder if I could justify the airspeed of a swallow scene. We also watched that. We talked about uh, whether coconuts migrate. And we talked about the coconut trade in uh, in 14th century England. Also, oh, cool. by the way, I did a version. So I also did the same class like at the Maiman Center and that had a remote option. And my parents signed up and my parents absolutely like fucking like trolled me over Zoom. <laughs> and my mother kept like asking about like about like the use Prima Noctis. Oh, well, I hope your mom was listening. Or actually, I'm pretty and... sure she said Prima Nocta. Um, and I <laughs> wanted to commit. Yeah. <laughs> I guess Prima Nocta. Isn't that what you told me before? Use prime noctis. Okay, sorry. I mean, again, everybody listening at home, 
<laughs> strengthening my case there. One of us knows Latin and one of us doesn't, as I think we Whoa, whoa. That is accurate. Um, Sarah, <laughs> what are we covering today on Medieval, your podcast, which for some reason I'm doing My podcast, which you've taken over. So yeah. today, we today are going to be talking about The Legend of Vox Machina Season 2. So this was released on Amazon at the beginning of 2023. And this is, of course, season two of the animated series, which is based on Critical Role, which is a live play Dungeons and Dragons web series. And so we already covered season one. And so just uh, as a general reminder for people, if you didn't either watch season one or listen to our episode on season one, you might be somewhat lost and in general, we obviously are going to be spoiling the entire this season. So, you know, keep that yeah. in mind. It, it, it's definitely, this is a spoiler cast. I think it, somebody once posted that in the Facebook group that they didn't expect there to be spoilers. And uh, How many? And then, I feel like most movie podcasts have spoilers. I think they all do. But like they deleted it really quickly. I think because it, there were already 50 episodes. So it's not like it was coming out of the blue that there were spoilers right. on Medieval. We've had spoilers since like the beginning. Since the very first episode. We just usually don't remember to remind people that there are spoilers. Somebody said that to me recently. They listened to the first episode and they said, uh, it was great that you said that you were going to spoil the movie, but then you went on a two minute rant about how much of a dickhead um, Mel Gibson was. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> And I still stand by it because people seem to have softened in the last five years on him, but you know. Which is bullshit. He's still an anti-Semite. Fuck that guy. Yeah. And not in the comedy way that I'm an anti-Semite. An actual anti-Semite. No, he's still an anti-Semite. He's still a misogynist. Fuck that guy. Fuck him. Yeah. Um, the lead characters, once again, are played by the uh, main critical role team. So Laura Bailey as Vex, Telly Jaffe as Percy, Ashley Johnson as Pike, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Liam O'Brien as Vax, Sam Regal as Scanlon, Travis Willingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer, who is the DM of the original web series, plays several characters, of course, and, you know, his capacity as the DM traditionally would be playing all NPCs, like presumably, which he's obviously not doing in this. But he's playing a couple of significant ones, including the Dragon Umbrasil. And he is playing, or he is the, the voice of Craven Edge, which used to be Silas's sword and is now Grog's. Yeah, so a very quick recap on season one. Um, there was a dragon that attacked um, the capital city of the world where this is set. And all of the soldiers were pretty much killed or incapacitated in some way. So a ragtag group were sent to try and take them down. Uh, they did find out then that one of the generals for the king was actually the dragon in disguise. But they managed to trick him and kill him. And then these two vampiric, uh, sexy vampiric people came in and were had took over effectively using their mind control. And through a series of adventures, the Vox Machina crew were able to defeat them. And we finished up with them effectively having their Star Wars scene at the end where they're getting their medals, getting put on them, and they're giving the freedom of the city, etc. And as this is happening four dragons start coming into attack and that's where we start off with episode one yes and we also i will i will just add very quickly before we get into actually talking about the series that we also have a couple of uh, notable new people in terms of the guest cast that i wanted Ooh, to yeah. highlight 
Uh, so first of all, uh, Lance Reddick as uh, the as Thordak, who is the lead dragon of the Chroma Conclave, so this group of dragons. Uh, and rest in peace, because uh, he actually died quite recently, which is very sad. Um, and he's, you know, I, I mean, I mostly know him from from The Wire, uh, as Cedric Daniels, where he was really excellent. So yeah, yeah and very, built like very a sad. tank. <laughs> yeah, no, and he's he's great. Um, and yeah, so yeah, very sad. But yeah, he so he has Thordak. Um, also, uh, official media evil MVP and my new bestie on Twitter, uh, Ralph Ineson, is also in this. Did I tell you about this? No. Um, we refer in the Macbeth episode, actually. Uh, Morgan, my friend Morgan, and I talked about him as like being the medieval MVP, the media evil MVP, because we went through a ton of things and we were like, he's been like featured on this podcast like 10 times. Mm-hmm. Um, and he like responded on Twitter. Like we didn't even tag him. He must just have like a cert, a, a, a like alert for his name. Yeah. Somebody must've said it to him. That's cool. Yeah. And yeah. what did he say? Uh, and he, he said honored. And I and then I said, if you ever want to, uh, chat about doing medieval movies on the podcast, we'd love to have you. And he said, I'm sure I'll work in the period again and maybe we'll have a chat. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I would lo- so, Sarah, open invitation. I would love to have him on the podcast. I will come back as permanent guest host <laughs> if I get the chance to talk to Ralph Innocent. Because then I'm just going to ask him about being Finch in um, in the British offices. <laughs> what was it like? Is Ricky Gervais really as annoying as he seems? And uh, hopefully he will say yes. Yeah. We also have Billy Boyd, so uh, Pippin from Lord of the Rings, as uh, the satyr Garmali, who is uh, in, a, in a couple episodes, and uh, Henry Winkler as uh, Pike's grandfather, Wilhelm Trickfoot. Uh, this is a genuine question, uh, and it's going to sound like I'm trying to sting you again, but I'm not, because I know you're a real Lord of the Rings person, right? Do you sometimes forget which one was Merry and which one was Pippin? No, actually. Damn. I always have to stop and pause and think for a second because so the other lad is Dominic Monaghan Monaghan yeah so which is where I'm from in in Ireland I nearly said that's Mm -hmm. where I'm from in Monaghan but that's where I'm from in Ireland and even with that I still can't remember which one is which I can consistently remember which one is which I can actually even like I can pretty like they do a podcast together and I can actually even pretty consistently tell their voices apart so with that Let's get into the section where we recap the events of the series or of the season, which is a segment we call Enumeratio. So we start with the invasion of the Chroma Conclave. So basically there is now a not just one dragon, but a whole group of dragons who are basically take over uh, the city of Iman. And uh, with this takeover of Vox Machina, they, you know, they kind of head out. Uh, they kind of help get some of the refugees out. Uh, they they have a brief chat with Gilmore. They end up saving Gilmore and working with him a bit and uh, then get teleported to the keep that they have on the outskirts of town and then eventually end up in turn getting to Whitestone uh, because it is far away enough that they're like, okay, we can hopefully head over here and the dragons will not be here yet. Whitestone was the capital, or sorry, not the capital, it was the main city in the last season. It's where Percy's family were from and it's where the Silas and 
I can't remember Silas's wife's name or uh, partner's name, and it was where they were based and had taken over uh, and were effectively trying to raise some big evil force that we didn't hear mentioned in this season, I don't think. Right. And now Percy's sister Cassandra is currently in charge. Uh, So having managed to make it to Whitestone, they are then strategizing. And uh, Keeper Yenon suggests that they should seek help in this city called Vasselheim, which is basically, and we'll spend some more time in Vasselheim in the next episode, uh, basically this city that is essentially kind of a group of temples and the kind of leaders. It's, It's kind of like Vatican City if like every religion was in Vatican City. Yeah. Well, every religion is kind of in Vassal or uh, in Vatican City, Sarah. Like, they might not have a large presence, but we let them in through the gates. You've been to the Vatican. I mean, other religions are allowed there. I wouldn't yeah, say they have an official right. presence. Just saying they're allowed there, Sarah. Yeah, I I haven't been kicked out of Vatican City yet. Excellent. <laughs> As a uh, Jew. I'm, I'm trying to think. Have I been kicked out of <laughs> Maybe I have. I've been kicked out of many places. Um, but episode of the podcast, we might be a little bit feeling like we're rushing through the episodes just because we don't want to have a, another three hour episode. Another three Fox hours. Machina. But I realized we're going to be doing the same thing we did with the Rings of Power episode and did end up with a three hour episode anyway. Yep. And that was only eight episodes. So we will... It might seem like we're spending less time talking about each individual episode, but even though it will might feel like we're we're talking a little bit less, and that does not mean that we necessarily enjoyed this season less or any less than the first season. It just means that we're just we, trying we to move to along be, and not have another three-hour episode. Yeah, trying to keep it a little bit faster. But what we might do is give impressions uh, um, for each episode when we get to the end of the description. And one thing that I just want to say about this here is the first attack on the city by the Chromo Clonclave is brutal. It is. Yeah, they seem like they kill most of the population. Yeah, um, they just wreck the joint, um, to be perfectly frank. And people are getting murdered and eaten. Um, we have an ice uh, dragon, a fire dragon, a poison dragon, an acid The poison dragon. dragon in particular, like the acid, the poison acid thing, like that freaks me the fuck out. Yeah, it's just the fact that it's like he's spraying a liquid and then people are basically just melting and yeah it, and it's really well drawn like some people don't like the animation style in this i think it's very visceral i like the animation um, style a lot actually yeah um yeah and it, it, i i just think it's really well done and it really made me fear like legitimately for the vox machina characters yeah. as was going along because they are all very busy people and you never know who might need to get cut out of a season or who might be yeah. missing for a while and because it's dungeons and dragons a character can be killed and a new yeah. character can come and take their place. So at no point did you feel safe in even mm-hmm. characters that I really liked in the first season, like Gilmore, etc. Like you're really worried that they could be yeah. could be basically wiped out at any point. Um yeah. yeah, so first season first episode really hits home at how strong these dragons are. They had yeah. serious difficulty in the first season with one dragon, and now they have four more powerful dragons, or three more powerful dragons to deal with. And I will say, so I'm just going to go ahead and uh, do a do a slight spoiler as kind of we get toward the end. 
I, because of my, you know, just assumptions of like how TV season arcs worked, had sort of assumed that the this group of dragons, the Chroma Conclave, that the Chroma Conclave arc was going to be basically resolved in this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it isn't. There's a major turning point at the end of the season, of course. But the Chroma Conclave and most of the dragons involved in it remain a significant threat. And that will presumably be the next season, if uh, hopefully there will be a next season. And I will say I really liked that from a realism perspective in that this first episode makes it super clear what an intense threat these dragons are. So I like that the way then that this kind of conflict and arc is spaced out, it I think also does a lot to acknowledge that, right? That it's not that, you know, they are in fact harder to defeat and it will take more time than the foes they have previously faced. Yeah, 100%. It is, they are terrifying and the Vox Machina people look completely underpowered um in video games or whatever it's where you walk into a dungeon and the first uh random uh soldier or enemy you meet hits you for 95 percent of your damage and you go okay i'm not meant to be here yet that's mm-hmm. what the box yeah. machina crew are they are they're under level for what they're about to fight uh so yeah so in the next episode we head to vasselheim uh, so essentially our, our multi-religious Vatican City. And uh, they come in. Percy, for some reason, I'm going to talk about this more later, for some reason thinks that the way to get an audience with the rulers of a city is to talk to the guards at the city gates about it. I don't know why yeah. Percy doesn't know how diplomacy works, but I'm going to discuss it more later. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, just one last thing about the um, the end of the first season is the Chromaclonclave, the three dragons are discussing what to do about Fox Mackin and the fact they escaped. And again, because we've established how strong and powerful they are, they they don't really feel the need to hunt them down. And the leader of them yeah. basically says, if they happen to come across your path, kill them. But, yeah, and I kind yeah. of like that I, that too, right? That they're not, yeah. at this point, they're like, like, we don't care. Like, we don't really care that much. Like, right, we don't see them as that much of a threat. Yeah, these... Five people or six people we just wrecked. Uh, they're not really all that yeah. much of an issue for us. Yeah. Yeah. And that was great. Um, yeah. So they show up at the gates of Vasselheim and they're like, oh, we want to get some help. And they're just told, yeah, you can go up to the leaders. Yeah. Percy's like, we demand an audience with like, with like the, uh, the, you know, whatever they're called. Like they're like the council of all of the temples or the whatever religions. it is. Yeah. The leader right. of each religion. Yeah. And uh, they're like, okay, go, just go to their, they're like, they're like meeting building, just like show up over there. And Percy's like, but I demand an audience. I am Percy DeRolo, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, you're holding up the line. <laughs> Which I like, because uh, I'm not a big fan of Percy in general. He's no, a bit I also am not a big fan of Percy. And, and I will say, I think this season was interesting as a counterpoint to the previous season and that the previous season ended up being very much like heavy on Percy because they end up going to like his home city mm-hmm. and so it's a lot it's very focused uh, heavily on his arc and uh, it then this season I would say he takes more of a backseat and we get to see kind of more arcs and backstories for the other characters which I liked because I also am pretty mad on Percy honestly yeah Percy Percy definitely takes a backseat in this one um we can talk about it at the end i think this is much more of a vax um yeah focus season because he's got an interesting storyline involving the goddess of death and all that sort of stuff um and also grog because mm-hmm. one of the big bads they have to fight or he has to fight is he has to come to terms with his own 
we talk about that later on how what what he relies on for strength or whatever and he has to fight his his own uncle and and fight his demons from his past yeah so the council basically says we kind of don't care we are going to essentially just make sure that the dragons don't fuck with us and we kind of don't care about anybody else uh, you know they're you know they're they're isolationists they're you know america in especially World War One, and also kind of the beginning of World and also basically the beginning of World War Two. Yeah, um, it's not directly on our doorstep, so we don't have to worry about it. So we do not give a shit about literally anybody else. America. Mm. Um, <laughs> that's essentially the vibe of the, uh, this council in Vasselheim. So one of the members of the council then kind of sneaks out and suggests to them that maybe a good option instead would be to go to the Slayer's Take, which is this monster hunting mercenary guild. Yeah. Uh, and the twins, Vex and Vax, have their own kind of complicated history. Uh, apparently, uh, I believe Vex in particular is uh, believed to, uh, to owe them like a lot of money and something's head. Yeah, so the the twins, Vax and Vex, they were part of the Slayer's Take at some stage. And yeah. I think they snuck out on a deal taking everyone else's share of the money effectively. Um, yes. And we, we meet two people or uh, several people who know them, um, including one of them, Zara. Yeah. And Kashaw. Yeah. And so this is this is overall, I would say at this stage, uh, not successful in terms of their efforts to persuade the Slayers take to side with them. Uh, and they are sent to then uh, kind of be indirectly um, meet with slash maybe get executed by, I think, is the hope of the actual people of, uh, you know, Zara yep. and uh, Kasha as well in particular. Um, so they are sent to the main patron of the order, Osisa, who is a sphinx. Which who... is a, which is a weird thing, Sarah, because mm-hmm. as somebody who doesn't play Dungeons and Dragons or doesn't know much about Dungeons and Dragons, uh, my only real knowledge of what a sphinx is, is the giant statue in Egypt, which is, you know, a cat. Oh, I'm going to talk more about sphinxes later. I was assuming you were, um, but like I didn't realize that they were an actual mythical creature, but they are treated as if they are very much a specific mythical creature in this. And I think they're fantastic because they come across all moody and scary. Yeah. And yeah, so they are, they are fun. And yeah, and there's also, I think there's some interesting elements we'll talk about later in terms of how they engage with the uh, mythical representations of the Sphinx. Mm -hmm. But they essentially end up um essentially osisa ends up uh, uh basically deputizing at the group to uh, go off and find these uh kind of magical artifact weapons called the vestiges of divergence and i talked about this when we did the dungeons and dragons um movie episode again five stars if you haven't listened to that episode go go watch it go watch that yeah, movie absolutely Let's make it make as much money as possible um but this is what D&D campaigns have always come across to me and any video games or anything that I've played that have D&D elements. It is, we have come across a problem. We need to solve problem. How do we solve problem? Well, we can't solve it right now. So we need to go level up our skills and we need to collect some um, objects of power. Useful artifacts, yeah. That will, that will allow us to be much stronger than we are. So we are going to go get them. Now, in this particular instance they meet the uh, the leader of the slayers take the, the the mythical creature the sphinx and she puts them into a position 
she separates them out and gives them uh, basically their own little story um, their own little thing that will point out their weaknesses to them so for example Grog mm-hmm. ends up going to this what what is it called Sarah the champions or storm lords area arena? yeah this like arena thing where he's you know fighting somebody who keeps asking you know where does your strength lie and it's a question that he's struggling to answer and he gets pummeled and again yeah. Grog is our big melee fighter or melee fighter if you're American but melee if you're you know civilized and um they are fighting each other and uh he gets absolutely hammered and he can't answer the question about where his strength comes from um it cuts to uh scanlan scanlan is the bard scanlan is the musical one he's the the comic relief a lot of the time and his big question is do any of them actually like me will i let them down at a point when Mm -hmm. they need me um vax is again struggling with the fact that he thinks that he has to protect his sister but he's worried that his sister will leave him um so even though he thinks he's protecting her she thinks that she's protecting him and that's what makes them work really well together but at the same time they also need to maybe learn to live apart from each other and pike's big issue is has she been able to achieve like proper Mm -hmm. belief and faith and um and Keelit's big thing is that she hasn't actually finished her training yet. She's only right. finished one aspect of her training. And the Sphinx is able to get into their psyche and actually show them these are your big problems. If you can't overcome those big problems, you won't be able to move on and fight as a team. And yeah, I, I think it's which very good. makes sense. And I'll talk about it more later, but also in that, you know, the Sphinx is certainly associated with wisdom in different uh, mythical traditions. So yeah. that also makes sense, right? That the Sphinx then is kind of addressing these, uh, these kind of questions about, you know, your, you and your, and your abilities and your weaknesses, I think kind of, I think kind of works. Um, the other thing that I wanted to make sure to note with this episode is that we, do also see. So one of the things that gets seeded at the end of the previous season is that Grog takes Silas's uh, massive sword that eats blood. Mm-hmm. And you know that the massive sword that eats blood, that's already starting to kind of whisper to him that like, you know, that's not going to go super well. And here we start to see more of uh, basically how how Chetty Grog's new sword is who is uh who is named Craven Edge and he's and uh, you know Grog's like you know talks to it and calls it Craven, um, Craven and and he I can't is, do that right now I'm taking a shit and he spends a lot of it yeah there's like this whole bit where he's like talking to his sword and uh, has to pretend that he is uh talking through talking to his shit coming out to hide the fact that he's talking to his sword. Uh, and what was the other thing that I was going to say? Oh, and the sword spends a lot of time talking about how he, he hungers. That's the sword's main line is I hunger. Yeah. And for as blood, said, specifically in the first season, it was all about Percy and Percy's backstory. And he takes much more of a backseat so that we can find out stuff about Grog. We can find out yeah. more stuff about Pike and about Keyless, etc. And I, I, as far as I'm concerned, that's A1, number one. That's what we want to be doing. Yeah. And the, and the thing I like also is that I see what you mean in this some way being like especially Vax's story, but I also think the season is really effective at like it seems like there's a way in which like each each character kind of gets like an episode where they're sort of a bit more the focal point. Uh and so I really like that aspect of the season. And yeah, so 
each of the episode gets to focus on each of the thing because again the the spark the party um splits up. The reason that I I'm saying this is Vax's story is again because I've listened to Critical Role. So mm-hmm. the storyline that he goes through in this particular one is incredibly important for the end uh-huh. point of what happens, which probably wouldn't be. Well, I mean at least the fourth season where we would finish up with this particular group of Vox Machina mm-hmm. because the way Critical work, Role works they do finish up the entire story arc for a whole group and then the same characters again play a completely different game as mm-hmm. six other different completely different characters and right. um, yeah so that's what, so this knowing that this is super important and the deal that he makes is super important makes me lean towards this but you're right everybody gets at least an episode to two episodes to talk about their own backstory and their own problems, their own issues. So Asisa sends them off to find her mate, and it will be in the the tomb in which her mate is hanging out that they will be able to uh, get one of the these vestiges. Um, or, well, there's... They're both going to find the vestige in the, that's like the vestige in the tomb for the champion of the matron of ravens, which we'll get to in a bit. And then also another, basically a, um, like something else is going to like reveal more. Her maid, their, her maid is going to like reveal more of the vestiges basically, right? So yeah, uh, that this is the, the path for to find these magical weapons. Yeah. So they're going to go into episode three. They're going to go to the shrunken tomb. And in yes. order to do that, sunken tomb, need... not the shrunken tomb. Oh, oh sorry, what the very, very the sunken small tomb. So <laughs> the very, very this... small tomb. It's a very, very small tomb. They need to get in there, and they have to find some way. Probably using magic. Can't you just magic it better? But no. they need to get into the sunken tomb, which, as you might believe, is is at the bottom of a lake. And they go That's with. Why the... they call it the sunken tomb? That they go with Zara um, and her friend. And well, I wouldn't going... say they go with Zara and Kasha. It's more that they go and then Zara and Kasha show up and yes. say, we're here now. Uh, and are a combination. Yes, they were not invited. And are, as we go through the you know couple episodes that we have in this like tomb scenario, they are um, alternatively helpful and actively unhelpful i guess yeah definitely uh we also get a bunch of flashbacks starting in this episode of uh the childhood of the twins so vex and vax are half elven so they had a human mother and an elf father and their father is a real fucking dick yeah he's a bad dad elf dad and based on watching both the lord of the rings um hobbit movies and the Rings of Power series, I'm starting to think all elf dads are pretty bad dads. All elf dads might be shitty dads. And in this one specifically, it's this weird vibe that it seems like he kind of hates them because they're not full elven, but that's kind of on him. (laughs) So, but in this also, it's like, it's like, this is also especially annoying and that it's like, sir, like there's no implication of like coercion. Like you chose to, as far as we know, you chose to have sex with this human woman and then she had some kids like that's on you. So I feel like it's like, it's like especially shitty and racist that he like hates these children that I'm like, you're, you're responsible for the situation. 100%. Exactly. Um, which is also 
pretty much the Spock story in Star Trek as well. Because he, uh, his dad, Sarek, um, takes a human wife because he thinks he should because he's the human... Uh, yeah, he's and the then he's a dick about Earth. it. Yeah, that's pretty much what happens. Yeah, that's no, so, some fucking bullshit. Yeah. So we know what you did. You stole this from Star Trek. <laughs> but yeah, so bad dad, elf dad... Uh, and then in the tomb, uh, they're essentially kind of, you know, walking around. There's a lot of kind of walking around the tomb, facing various, various challenges. This includes Zara and Kasha, who sometimes just like ditch them to go and look for things. And sometimes are like actively trying to harm them. They are trying to then kind of figure out what to do. And Vex then opens this sarcophagus and... Uh, they're kind of looking at like the armor and this sets off this trap and Vex gets killed, which I was yes. so mad about. Um, I was very upset. Well, we don't want to talk about Dungeons and Dragons and fridging women, but we might need to talk about it in a second. But in in this scene, they, they separate the party. And again, we have different skill sets put together and see how they solve the issue of passing through a tomb. And... There's two or three little action set pieces before they get to the point where they find the coffin. And they're all really good. Yeah. Like, they're really well done. They're really well organized. The they, they, they action doesn't feel confusing, even though and a lot of times, and I, again, I know it's an animated series, and I'm still going to use the word because I grew up calling them this. In the cartoon, or in cartoons, it can mm-hmm. be really awkward sometimes to figure out what's going on because yeah. there's super quick cuts that make your average John Wick movie look like it's on, you know, slow down speed or whatever. Right. But what's happening here is very clear. They're being attacked by people who or these fish people who can move in the water really quickly and they can't see them where they're coming from and they need to get saved, etc. And then when they get to the main ruins, Vax who is playing the rogue, it's his job to go around and check for traps. That's effectively what he's doing. Like, if we're talking about rolling insight checks and mm-hmm. and trying to um, turn off traps and all this sort of stuff, that's his function. Um, and he's busy trying to find, he's like, I'll go around and check the room. And while he, I think he goes down into, um, uh, there's like a collapsed area, and he's down in this collapsed area. And then Percy happens to see, oh, or maybe it's even Grog sees, look, there's a, there's something glowing up here as well. And then when they click it while Vax is down in the hole, that's when the sarcophagus comes up. And they're like, oh, we don't have to wait for Vax. We can do this ourselves. Well, it turns out maybe it would have been a good idea right. to wait for Vax because they spring the trap and the trap takes out Vex. And she's dead. Like, this yeah. is not a... Like, they try to heal um, her and are not able... And there is, like, nothing to heal. Um, yeah, and this is Pike at her full powers. Yeah. So there's nothing holding her back. And she, she's like, there is no soul. There's no way for me to... Yeah. I, I can't do anything here. Yeah. And I so and I will say, um, you know, slight spoiler. So Vex is, is going to make it. We'll discuss how in a moment. Uh, genuinely, I think I straight up would have, like, stopped watching if they'd killed off Vex. And then the whole season was about, like, Vex, like, being motivated by his dead sister. I absolutely think I would have stopped watching. Um <laughs> I don't love a death fake out, but fine. 
Well, in this one I here, I wouldn't even call this a death vicar. She's she dead. is dead. Yeah, yes, but you know she she will so she will get revived, uh, which we'll, we'll I'll explain in a moment. So uh, we get more flashbacks, uh, and and I'm basically also just genuinely sitting here, right? And I'm like. She better not fucking be dead. She better not fucking be dead. And then they have all these like flashbacks of like cute baby Vex and Vax. And they find the like, and they find like a cute baby bear cub. And Vax is like, we're not going to raise a bear. And I'm like, obviously Vex is going to raise a damn bear. Um, And this is, this is Trinket who of course we, uh, we now have. And Trinket is adorable as a baby and adorable as a badass armored adult. And adorable as a giant bear that will rip you to shreds if you get in any way sort of form causing any sort of pain to uh, his owners. But it's still um, a sweet baby also, cub. <laughs> Just like all dogs are puppies forever. They find a, a way to keep Trinket safe as well. They, they find a little pocket dimension, mm-hmm. which is another, um, it's, it's one of those lovely things that you find in Dungeons and Dragons and from listening to podcasts and playing video games. Like for example, um, we, we've talked before about the Adventure Zone we should maybe even do an episode. Imagine we did an episode of the podcast about a podcast. I keep but, thinking um, about that because like Hello from the Magic Tavern also I feel like would be a viable candidate. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, although I don't like that as much. It's just me. I'm grumpy. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Stephen, um, who is Taco's pet fish, is always kept in the little pocket dimension. Yeah. And then they'll just randomly mention him every... 10 episodes or so. And Stephen's okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, the pocket dimension is its own property right. and all this stuff. And so Trinket will be safe no matter what happens. Yeah, so it's brilliant. Very important. Oh, sorry. Just one other thing that I just wanted to say is, because uh, you've mentioned it in your notes, uh, there's an archive scene. Oh, yes, yes. They're in the archive. The Slayer's Take has an archive and it has maps and it's very cool. I always love when people have archives. And they have to plot out where they're going to go and they have to go look through the annals. What are these... What are these weapons, these yeah. these artifacts they're talking about? Well, we should consult the scrolls. I love it. I love it when they get an archive. So basically what ends up happening is that Vax sees this vision of the, the matron of ravens taking Ve- uh, Vex's soul and uh, yells something along the lines of, take me instead of her, you bitch. And yeah. said, said bitch uh, takes him up on this offer, but not in the way you would expect in that one might expect, okay, that means now he's going to die and she's not. Instead, it's that Vex's soul is returned to her and he finds himself wearing this armor of the champion of the matron of Ravens. Exactly. So he, so this is episode four we're in now. He shouts to the Ravens, take me instead. And there's no communication, there's nobody talking to him, but it's implied that he has somehow signed this deal and he wakes up and he's wearing the breastplate, this armour. And he's also picked up some cool new skills. Yeah, which we see because in particular, so Zara, so this is the the pocket dimension. The pocket dimension is this locket that Zara has and she basically, she's like... Well, so I'm going to release this monster from it and maybe the monster will kill or petrify all of them, in which case I guess I don't give a shit. Or I guess if he doesn't, they'll prove that they're really worthy of the vestige. So she does this. It very quickly gets out of hand. Like, I think she gets petrified too. Like, nobody is doing well. And uh, uh, Vax, however, has unlocked these various powers and is able to basically kill this monster single-handedly. Um, and uh, Kasha actually manages to, he is, I guess, has like healing stuff and manages to like restore the people who are petrified. 
throughout the throughout the series or throughout this storyline, um, Zara and Kishaw have been kind of helpful, kind of not. Kishaw has been much more helpful than Zara has. Zara has had this previous relationship with Vex. Vex and Vax are both portrayed as bisexual, so they may have been in a relationship right. with each other at some stage, and she still obviously harbors some sort of. They've got, they've got, they've got X vibes. Uh, but Kishaw has been making friends with Keelet because they both have what appears to be some sort of earth magic, some sort of ability to commune with plants a little bit and the ability to heal. So they've been working together and he goes out of his way to help and he and uh, Vax together manage to to save this and manage to save everybody from this this basically big beastie that was released. And it's, again, it's another excellent action scene. It is, yeah. If it wasn't for the fact that Vax has just had his upgrade and his new weapon and his new body armor and his new ability and skills, they would all have been petrified and left to die in the second tomb. And again, it's real Dungeons and Dragons stuff where you've upgraded yourself. Now you're able to take down the bat. Yeah. I will say the, the one area where I would say this season, it was, um, it was things that weren't the main focus that I didn't adore is that in general, I didn't love the kind of vague gestures at romance stuff for the most part in this season. Mm -hmm. So that there's a lot of like, there's reasons for Kasha and Keyleth to bond, but there's also some like weird flirtation between the two of them that I found sort of unnecessary and it kind of didn't like, I couldn't quite figure out why it was there. Cause it seemed like sort of, they were trying to put it there to make to have like a, like then Vax is going to be jealous, but then they didn't even like do anything with that. Not that I think that that was an especially like interesting, like way to go anyway. So I kind mm. of like wish they'd kind of skip that. I also find like very unclear throughout a lot of this exactly what, Vex and Percy's relationship is because it like occasionally seems like sort of pseudo romantic, but they don't really kind of do anything with that either, which like, again, I yeah. think it's fine, but also I'm kind of like, I mean, I, I'm kind of like not here for it in general. Cause I think she's too good for him, but whatever. Yeah. Well, Percy, Percy's just like a nice guy, Sarah. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand that he, like, I it's mean... so hard for a nice, a nice white man. <laughs> it's so hard for a nice white, extremely rich man in a fantasy world he actually is the quintessential nice guy like i'd be your friend i'm just doing oh yeah percy i'd like him even less and i didn't like him much before um no what i think could be happening is again just from somebody who's listened to this series is there are within the lore of critical role there are established relationships so these are all little nods to what will eventually happen so for example and not to spoil anything, I think it's fairly obvious that Vax and Keyleth are right. going to have some sort of connection later on. I That's think the only one I actually kind of like. I feel like they're kind of cute. Yeah. And I think there's also, it's fairly obvious that Vex and, and Percy have something going on into the future. And because of that, I think that's what they're just like, you know, hey, look, this is still going on. It'll still probably happen. Right. And these two people might get, get get together or whatever. But I said, like, we already know for a fact that Vax and um, Gilmore have had a sexual right. relationship in the past and probably will again to sexy men. I hope so. But yeah, um, I really like Gilmore as a character. Yeah, he's great. He's just, he's just, he's got all the right vibes about him. Like, he's a really cool dude. Um, 
Uh, we also, in this, uh, at the end of this episode, we see that guests in the, in the classic, that's why you should have fucking shot them in the head. <laughs> Anna Ripley's back. The, the one person on like Percy's like magic gun that he didn't shoot in the head. Guess what? She's back and she's fucking with them. And I, it, I really like this because everyone else was like, no, Percy, don't do it. And I remember you texting me at the time going, you should have just shot that bitch. Yeah, she absolutely, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I mean, actually, I, I, th- I will say, I think in the specific context, uh, there actually was like a reason he didn't shoot. Oh, well, then it was stupid, right? It was like, they, he was like not shooting her because it would like, ruin their like stealth attack and then they like let her walk away and then like two minutes later they're like hey i'm like then you should just shot her if you were gonna do that and also in general i'm absolutely in favor of the um when you have the like person in a context of a film or tv show who is obviously a like unredeemable shitty villain i'm completely fine with the just shoot them in the head and if you don't just shoot them in the head they will come back and they will fuck your shit up and that's obviously exactly what happens Absolutely. I, it's one of those things. She was a villain. There was no indication that she ha- was going to make any sort of turn to being good. Yeah. So. It was very clear. She was kill, helping them for a bit. And it was very clear that she was only helping them uh, to get things for herself. Uh, and uh, she clearly like was garbage. And so, you know, unsurprisingly, it seems like she's now around and is uh, at this point, I think, just seems... Uh, vaguely vaguely malevolent initially but will uh as we move forward become more obviously villainous yeah we see her we see her heading towards where the chroma conclave yes conclave conclave at this time um i also think it's funny where um later on in the i think it's maybe the next episode episode it could be two episodes now and when grog spots her he's like i think i recognize her (laughs) right because why would he? He's only seen her once. Yeah. He's not. He's not. And he's not very like. bright. So, yeah. So the next episode, episode five, is uh, the one that is, I would say, kind of really Keyleth's episode. That it begins yeah. with a flashback. Uh, we have Keyleth learning from her mother about the connection between the air and fire elements. Uh, her mother then departs on her her Aramente, this kind of you know training journey where you learn as a member uh, you know as a member of this group to it to master all of the different elements. She never came back ultimately, and this is the same journey that Keyleth is now uh, allegedly on, but has kind of uh, taken, I would say, what one could describe as a very extended detour. Yeah, um, so we go back to where she's from. And we meet her dad and her dad is like disappointed that she left and all this sort of stuff. And she's like, I'm, I'm making my own way and I want to be happy with this. And obviously we get another big action set piece. Yes. And so in particular, the action centers around the fact that so so she is of the air Ashari. And so that is the element that she has most mastered. And uh, we are here at a settlement associated with the fire Ashari, which is around this volcano. And basically the, the volcano is supposed to be dormant. And if the volcano is not dormant, that means that uh, bad shit is going to happen. That, you know, like the, the like fire plane of existence is going to enter our plane of existence. And that is a bad thing. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, so, and of course, you know, Keyleth manages ultimately to kind of, you know, save the day 
uh, kind of protect her people from these uh, these fire elementals. Uh, this is, of course, also linked to the Kroba Conclave. It's um, like Thornax yeah. Escape, which is what opened up this rift, I believe. And she's is shown to be incredibly powerful. She's able to close back the rift herself. And in the end, she gets granted the mastery of now she has um, air and fire. And she still has water and earth left to go, I think. Um, but this is, you know, the first time well since she fans. left on her Araminta, as far as we can tell, that she has, like, made official progress on what she is, like, supposed to be doing. Uh, it's obviously yeah. clear that that is, you know, remains not her top priority because she, you know, then goes no. off with Vox Machina to, you know, do do the other things that they are doing. Uh, but a kind of interesting element, right, that this is something that she is then, you know, kind of maybe sort of thinking about in a new way for the first time in a while, I suppose. And it's another clever nod to Dungeons and Dragons leveling system. Mm -hmm. She's now mastered two out of the four. So she uses two by the end of this season. And as we go along, I'm assuming that in the next season, she will master water. And in the season after that, she will master earth. So it would be building up towards her full power. Yes. Uh, We also get a couple of other things. So Vexa gets a flying broomstick. Um, and so she now uh, can can fly when needed. So that's helpful. Uh, we also... It gives her, allows her to give aerial support with yes. her arrows because yes. she's a, an archer. Yeah, so that's helpful. Uh, we also, for the first time, see the, uh, the, the Goliaths or these kind of giants, so Grog's people, who are uh, raiding and kind of running Westron on behalf of Umbrasil, who is one of the dragons of the Chroma Conclave. And Ripley shows up and says she would like to have a nice chat with Umbrasil about Vox Machina. So, um, so we now see Ripley as uh, playing increasingly a important behind-the-scenes villainous role. Yeah, this um, I remember I, I read about this online, and people were saying this was like a filler episode. But this is not a filler episode. No, just because it's about Keelit mainly doesn't make it a filler episode. No, you just don't like Keelit as much. But tons of stuff happens here, and. I said tons of little things that are that are interesting and fun. Like as I said, so far we haven't really talked about Scanlan. Right. Um and Scanlan has been because of what he learned from the Sphinx in the second episode, that his yes. biggest fear is not being useful or deserting his friends. Every chance he gets, he's he's really making an effort, but he's not necessarily the most useful character mm-hmm. at this particular point. But again, this is all leading to him having his hero moment later on right. and, or him having his his path to redemption and to be less of a, well, less of a bad dad, bard dad, right. um, as we'll find out later on. Yeah, and that is, again, that is actually one of the things I, I completely disagree with the idea that this is a filler episode because, again, one of the things that I really liked about this season is that it gives basically everybody, I think, actually a pretty significant kind of mini, a kind of mini arc, right? That, as I said, I can I can see the ways in which, especially in terms of the kind of things you've told me about and that I've read about the kind of larger arc of the whole story, I see the way in which this is kind of especially Vax's season, But I think that, you know, I I think to some extent a weakness for me of season one is that it felt so overly focused on Percy. And as I said, that's part because I don't like Percy. But I also think that in something that is an ensemble cast, I even if it's a character I like, I don't think I want it to be 
totally focused or overwhelmingly focused on one particular character. I think I want to see all of those characters get their little arc and get their little development, especially because like, I, I like those characters. Like, I don't know, maybe you've like, you, you yeah. might think it's a filler episode because you don't like Keyleth. I like Keyleth. And so I was like, oh, I'm glad to see her like a little bit more development of this particular character. Yeah, this idea of, of filler episodes pops up a lot, and you see it in um, like from especially in fantasy because you know a lot of fantasy fans can be you know dicks contentious. Um, but like even in comedy shows, like I remember there was a, a, a an episode of Brooklyn Nine Nine that people were describing as filler episode because it didn't really feature Jake or Boyle too much. You're like, yeah, yeah. There's other people in the cast. Filler. Like there's other people in the cast. Like that's that's what they're there for. Um, like even. Like you took the wheel of time. We talked about this. Like people talking about oh filler or um Jordan is is he's he's slowing down the plot too much. It's like no, you just don't like Elaine's character, right? So when it's he, not filler are, because it's not just about Rand. Exactly. The sixteen chapters in book nine, which is about her succession to or you know her her fight for the throne of Andor, and you're like yeah, but. Think about this. She's trying to gain a throne without using yeah. the dragon connections or anything like that. She's trying to do it the correct way. It, that's not something that's going to be resolved in half a chapter so yeah. you can get back to, oh, Rand's got a sword of fire again. Right. And again, I love Rand. I think Elaine's annoying, but it's not a filler to have her chapters in yeah. the book. And this is not filler just because it's not about Grog punching people or Vax using his new cool powers. Right. Um, one thing that did come to a little bit to the fore in this was my issue with, or season one, and it's my issue with almost all fantasy, is Vax, in this episode, could have just had a little bit of a chat with his friends. And a little bit of uh-huh. chat with his friends might have been, oh, by the way, um, Vax was actually dead and I made a deal with the um, the Raven lady to um to swap my soul with her and that's where I got all these super cool powers and stuff. So, you know... um put that in your back pocket <laughs> that was a big issue that i had with season one where it was like percy needs to have one fucking conversation but i i will say it annoyed me more in season one because in season one there was a lot of moments where things happened and nobody asked percy Questioned what it. his yep. deal was or like or like even if they asked like he would like say something like vague and nobody would ever push him and that annoyed me this annoyed me a little bit less because they actually, because I think most of them were petrified, they actually haven't really seen as much of what Vax can do. And so it makes mm-hmm. sense to me that none of them are pushing him on explaining what his deal is. And uh, it makes sense to me to some extent that he does not strike me as the most like forthcoming person and so I buy that he is not, like, volunteering an immense amount of information at this stage. Okay, so uh, Grog is continuing at his uh, his individual arc, which is that he and his sword are chatting, and his sword is not very nice. And he has this whole nightmare, basically, which is, I think, basically the opening of episode six, where he has killed all of his friends to feed mm-hmm. Craven Edge, because Craven Edge is very hungry. And again, it's another really well-done action yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's scary. The main then focus of this episode is that now they need to go and find Osisa's mate, Kamala Jori, and uh, 
Osi and Kamala Jori is supposed to then tell them where the other vestiges are located. Uh, once again, we've got like connections between sphinxes and wisdom and knowledge, right? That you need to pass the sphinx and pass some kind of test before the sphinx will then reveal this information and gives them some various options for challenges that they can perform. He's like, we've got a bunch of, you know, are they are they Gorgons? Do you remember? There was like some sort of, some like group of monsters yeah. that you can fight. Can you fight like a hundred of these or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, there was like some group of monsters that you can fight. Uh, I think there was like a labyrinth kind of option, something like that, that you have to like go through some like vague evil, evil labyrinth or mm. wound him. And they're like, oh, very Green Knight-esque. Can't be that hard. Right. Very Green Knight-esque. And yeah, yeah. They're in there. So their attitude is essentially, how hard can it be to give this guy one <laughs> wound? The answer is, like, super hard. Yeah, because he's a tough, badass sphinx and he wipes the floor with them. Yeah, and they get, like, basically sent into some kind of, like, like pocket dimension or something like that, basically. Like, after mm-hmm. each of them tries and fails to wound him. And, and this is where Scanlan yeah. gets his chance to shine. Yeah, and he actually has the cool move. And and I always love this. I always kind of love when people are like, oh, it's not just like hitting things that actually there's like different things that one can do and one can like use mm-hmm. skills that aren't hitting things. Uh, I always kind of appreciate that in fantasy settings where there is a lot of hitting yeah. things. Um, yeah, it's brilliant to, to see them just go, you know, not everybody is good at punching and yeah. stabbing. So yeah. other people can do those things. And Scanlan can sing yeah and he sings a song about osisa and reminds him of how much he misses his partner and like wounds him emotionally with this song about love which is actually really it's Mm. it's like really sweet and very cool i like that yeah it's actually really touching and it's a nice tune yeah it's like yeah this is good good job scanlan and um and then they end up having this nice chat and when the rest of Vox Machina are brought back after getting their asses handed to them, they pop in and it's just like uh I can't pronounce his name, Kamala Jory and Scanlon like just sitting down having a chat about uh, lost love. Right. And, and then he's like, This is the wisest guy I've ever met and they'll they're all like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so he then gives him the Mythcarver vestige, which is a magic sword, and it gives him visions of other vestiges, which include a bow, obviously something that's going to be useful for Vex, for and Vex, yeah. a pair of gauntlets, which are currently being held by the Goliaths. Um, and so something that's obviously yeah, going to connect see, to Grog's past We see the leader of the Goliaths, and he is a big, scary Grog. Yes. Yes, he is. However, Umbrasil shows up and disturbs this. Uh, we have this major battle. Umbrasil uh, kills Kamala Jory, which is very sad, um, mm-hmm. and managed to also take the sword. And Keyleth then... Uh, so, and the sword yeah. changes size depending on who's holding yes. it. So it's, it's bigger when Umbrasil has it versus when Scanlan yeah. has it. Keyleth uh, prepares a spell to take them to the Fey Realm because that's where the bow is located. And while she's doing this, a lot of stuff gets fucked up. Uh, Grog accidentally stabs Pike while she's mm-hmm. t- so she's trying she's tra- she's trying to kind of stop him and say, okay, we have to kind of let things go. We have to kind of stop stabbing and we have to go with Keyleth to the spell. 
he then, while trying to kind of, you know, push forward, ends up stabbing her. And so she seems to not be doing great. And then Umbrasil also disrupts things while the spell is being cast. So uh, we we split the party. That yeah, Keyleth, we end up getting split into three, two, two groups of three, basically. Yeah, so Keyleth, Percy, and the twins make it to the Fey Realm. And then uh, Pike, Scanlan, and Grog end up instead uh, on the outskirts of Ivan, um, I believe, which is where we'll then... Ivan, yeah. Yeah, or... Yes. Vordron, I think, maybe. Western. They're in Western. This where... Yeah, Western, yeah. Where, so, which is um, actually very helpful that they, in fact, end up uh, where the gauntlets are. Yeah, well, it's basically... They, they end up in two places. So rather than going... Because Keyleth is just thinking about the vestiges... Because she's never been there before and she explains that. And um, they basically get sent to where two different vestiges are. Yes. So split into two, which is, is very good. Yeah. Um, and Grog is uh, in a terrible way because she's after stabbing Pike. Pike's his best friend. And yeah. the next episode, we get flashback to uh, baby Pike and baby Grog. Yeah. So cute. So cute. Mm-hmm. Well, I say baby Grog. He's like a teenager. Yeah. Teen Grog. Well, t- actually, Teen Grog and also, like, Baby Pike, but mostly, like, middle-aged Pike's grandfather. <laughs> yeah, Henry Winkler yeah. being all Fonzie and Pikey. Yeah. So, yeah, so we've got, uh, basically then at this point, we have our kind of two different narratives, right? So that we we see, we learn about how, how Teen Grog... Uh, uh, basically was was persuaded by basically uh, Pike's grandfather talking about how he had a family and his like locket with his cute little pictures of, I guess actually Pike's mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's like he's like middle-aged and it's like, this is my like, please like don't like leave my daughter orphaned. So like that's super cute. And yeah. because of that, he decides against killing them. And that is what ultimately will have him uh, kicked out of the the herd of storms. So basically like kicked out yeah. of his, his, you know, his people's. Yeah, thing. so basically, when Kicked out of his tribe, they split basically. the party, the, the, the traitor and the fair realm are having their own little story. Uh, we're getting the flashbacks to what happened, and Grog meets Pike's father, and Pike is there as well. And he doesn't want to kill him. Like, he's he's obviously a, got a conscience, even though his people are very violent and love destroying. Like, all the mm-hmm. rest of them seem to be having a whale of a time killing tiny people like like i'm not even sure what pike is again i'm gonna say dwarf right but killing dwarfs I can't, I can't remember if she actually i think she is yeah so um goes around killing dwarfs or whatever and grog is like no i'm not gonna do this even though he's been shown to be enjoying part of the slaughter beforehand killing other people and he decides to let this run so he gets basically booted out of um booted out of the uh the, the, his his uncle's group and the other okay. then big thing that happens with Grog yeah. in this episode is that so so Grog has stabbed Pike. Uh, Pike is, I guess, trying to heal herself, but, but the wound won't close. And apparently the wound won't close because her blood is being sucked into Craven Edge. And so Grog, mm-hmm. you know, has his whole confrontation with and ultimately destroys the sword. But this then does allow Pike to be saved. But essentially, the the sword sucks up his all of his strength. Essentially, uh, he he loses all of his yeah. muscles. Poor buddies. And he becomes just a big floppy baby man. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. 
meanwhile, in the Fey realm, I thought the stuff in the Fey realm was hilarious for several reasons. Uh, first of all, I appreciate that they're like kind of going through like what they've lost by not having their friends, and they're like with Grog, like we don't have our like person who's like our like really best like strong fighter, and with Pike, we don't have anybody who can heal, and with Scanlan, we have less dick jokes. <laughs> Which is funny, and also again. That's what he's there for. He's there to make the party feel better. Yeah. He's a bard. Yeah. Uh, I also adored in this episode, so right, they get to the Fey Realm, and Percy immediately is like this, like, fucking nerd who's like, I have read so many books about the Fey Realm. I know what to do, blah, blah, blah. And then he keeps fucking up and failing miserably, and I think it's hilarious. <laughs> because again, the books were written by people who might never necessarily have been to the Fey Realm. He just, they're, they're, taking other people's work and then turned them into their own version of the stuff. Yeah. And he is wrong about everything. And they come across Garmalee, who is uh, played by Billy Boyd. Mm-hmm. Um, Pippin. Who is Pippin. And uh, and he is having a, a whale of a time with these noobs in the fair realm. Yeah. He's like making them go through, jump through hoops to try and get towards this again giant bow yes and he he kind of pops in and out uh at some point they realize he's been uh, watching them and has uh done some rather interesting drawings of them uh percy looks at the drawing made of him and asks the crucial question why do i have three peni which uh, i will note sounds very medieval uh <laughs> so many penis jokes constantly yeah we want as many dick jokes as possible mm-hmm so, yeah, but, and it's fun also because this is after they've made the joke about there being less dick jokes with Scanlan not being there and then relatively shortly after we get a dick joke. Garmely shows up <laughs> and replaces them, yeah. And Garmely seems remarkably powerful. Yes. Garmely, yeah. Garmely I'm curious about. I, I, especially with the, with the end that we get of Garmely eventually, yeah, well, I'll, be, I'll mm-hmm. be interested in seeing where, if we get more Garmely in a later season. Yeah, no, I don't know much about Garmely, but I do know, again, from having read some some vague uh, Dungeons & Dragons related things, that a lot of times gods have this habit of just wandering around and being real people on the earth or on the world that they're in. And I'm starting to think maybe he could be some sort of fey god. Maybe, maybe. Hmm. And he, um, But yeah. when they're there, he tells them where the bow is. And in order to get to the bow, they have to pass through this city that just showed up one day. He was like, just showed up. And Vex and Vax look at the city and go, oh, that's where our dad lives. Singorn is the city, which uh, I'm like, huh, that sort of sounds like, you know, you mix like Cinderin and Fengorn. So uh, yeah, you <laughs> maybe just, just a, a little, little does, teensy yeah. bit of like a, some Lord of the Rings <laughs> references. Uh, um, well, of course, Percy being a nerd recognized Billy Boyd's voice immediately. and was like, that's Pippin. <laughs> You have more in common with Percy than you want to. I actually didn't recognize his voice, but when I saw his name, I was immediately like, oh, that's Pippin. But I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of shit at recognizing voices, so. Okay, so mm-hmm. they travel through Singorn, which of course means that they are going to come into contact with Bad Dad, Elf Dad. Uh, he's a real dick, immediately. He's like, what the fuck have y'all been doing? You didn't amount to anything. You suck. Uh, they they meet that he has he has a better daughter <laughs> with mm-hmm. I guess an elf lady. <laughs> yeah, that, that, again, that's another thing that that seems weird. Like, oh, uh, you have disappointed me. Here's my replacement kid. You fuck. Pure blood version. What yeah. a what a racist dick. Uh, the yeah. kid, however, the kid is very cute, and the kid adores her older half siblings, and I like that. Yeah. She is a really nice thing. She's like, oh my God. And she looks like she wants to have fun and play with them. I know. Them. Like, and it's really and sweet. Yeah. And uh, 
Um, and, you know, and Vex is like, and even though Vex is clearly like having a rough go of it because her dad is such a fucking asshole is like really sweet to her. And it's like, it's, yeah, and it's like, it's nice. worth it to have met you. Like, uh, like, I'm so glad I came back and met you. It was like, so that's very cute. So the, yeah. there's hope for the next generation <laughs> in the, the Vessar family. Uh, Percy also is like, oh, she's actually Lady Vexalia, the Baroness of the Third House of Whitestone. And <laughs> her dad is basically like, go fuck yourself. I don't care. <laughs> but, and she's like, okay, well, that's, and she, and she seemed, does think this is nice that he stood up for her, which I guess it is. He, it's nice, nice that he tried. Yeah. It's nice. It is nice that he tried. I credit where credit is due. I'm not here for that relationship, but. He's a nice guy who did something nice for her. She, she owes him. Jesus Christ. Sarah is shaking her head. Jesus Christ. But is it up and down or is it left and right? It's left we'll and never right. know. It's left and right. Um. Again, just it's, it's, so listeners know, this is all parody. I don't believe that. And I, I and I will actually, I do genuinely think, as I said, I, I don't especially like Percy. I think Vex is way too cool for him. But I think this yeah. actually was genuinely like he did something sweet that he thought might help. And she is appreciative. It is a perfectly fine interaction. I will say, I think. He is... I mean, he's a noble dick. And he notices her father is also a noble dick. And so he tries to, like, do, like, noble dick talk together and yeah. her father is just so much of a noble dick that he tells him to fuck off. But like... He just out-noble dicks him. Yeah. But Percy is, as you said, she's too cool for him. Like, Percy's a narc. <laughs> like, Percy's the kid who's running to tell the teachers that there are other kids vaping in the bathrooms. Like, it's... And, like, and I get it, those characters exist, but like, it's the fact that he does seem to think he's cool. That's what makes me right. laugh at him. Like, right. You're a fucking narc. Yeah. So, okay. Sarah, just a random question. Yes. Were you a hall monitor when you were in school? No, I was not. Okay. I was, I was just like, I wasn't a narc. I was just a nerd. But like other people's like transgressions just were not my fucking problem. I just wanted them to leave me alone and let me read my books. Leave you alone and let you have your own dress code violations. Yes. Yes. Leave me alone to violate the dress code and read in the corner. That's all I want. <laughs> no, I'm not a fucking narc. <laughs> Vex then goes to, you know, have have her, you know, episode getting a vestige quest, uh, which involves a like creepy sex monster. Mm-hmm. Basically. It's weird. It's weird. It is a it, it's like it's good. It's again a good action scene, but it's like a weird tentacle thing. Like it's a weird tentacle on. thing, and he's also like very much like he's I mean he's just negging her, like Kylo Ren does to Ray, of like, nobody loves you but me. I love you. Yeah. It's weird. And it's trying to get inside her head and all this sort of stuff. And you're like, oh, okay, this is creepy. But they managed to defeat it and they get the Fentress bow. Yeah, and Percy had like given her this arrowhead and she uses that arrowhead to stab the guy. So, fine. And Garmalee then, as a thank you for being so very entertaining, opens up the portal to send them back to Taldore. And, yeah, exactly yeah. where they need to be and just does it just like 
that. Yeah, and he then uh, transforms into this, like, um, much more imposing and vaguely sexy form than he had previously Mm had. Um, So he presumably is is not the mere satyr he has been pretending to be. Exactly. He's just like, hey, I can do this because I have super power skills. And again, I to be honest with you, I can't remember if he shows up again. But the way he's portrayed here, he definitely feels like he's a yeah. much more powerful character. Yeah. So Pike's grandfather is able to remove the like corruption caused by Craven Edge, which means that Grog can't, in theory, recover his strength. But uh, that is yeah. apparently not an immediate overnight process necessarily. So there uh, will still be in the next episode a lot of um, dragging Grog around. Yeah. Dragging Grog around, picking him up and carrying him. It's just, it's very, very entertaining. Um, and he's he becomes such a big sad sack because power has and strength has been his entire thing, his entire life. Yeah. And now he's just this like 90 pound weakling getting carried by two dwarves like from one place to the other. And that and, is his um, also his skill, it, right? It, I mean, that is the contribution yeah. that Grog makes to the party is, you know, hitting things very hard. Grog bless his heart, is not very bright. Grog mm-hmm. is, you know, does not have magic. Grog, Grog hits things. Yeah. And again, uh, another D&D reference thing is that barbarians and certain other races and character types or archetypes can use this power called rage, which gives them a chance to deal double damage and have another action, mm-hmm. I think. So they get to move twice or roll a dice twice in one go or whatever. And uh, he calls that out a lot when he's going, Grog Rage! Right. And goes into battle. And now he's unable to do any of that sort of stuff. And it's about him trying to find the strength, the personal strength to get back and fight again. Yes. So other things that happen this uh, kind of next episode, uh, Scanlan comes across this kind of group of, uh, I think they were like some sort of like traveling players or something who ended up in the city and now are hiding so they don't get, you know, brutally murdered by the herd of storms. Uh, This group includes another gnome named Kaylee, who we will get more of shortly. So we'll just... Um, did Did you notice anything about Kaylee? She has pink hair. Or like a pink hair streak. She does have pink hair. She's like a she's like a little punk rock chick. Yeah. But uh, she has an incredibly Irish Irish accent. Oh yes, oh yes, she does. Um, okay, I did actually look up the actress. Is that a anything resemble? Is that a real accent or is that a not real accent? Yeah, no, okay. that's that's a real accent. Okay. Yeah, yeah, just checking. She, that's what from from the area she's from, which is just the north side of Dublin, that would be or outside of the north side of Dublin. That's pretty much what they would sound. Okay, like. and she's got that Irishiness going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also got the exact same accent that the guy who is playing Aram in the first season of Wheel of Time has. Mm. So he's he's from basically the same area, and mm. they're roughly the same age. Yeah. So I wonder if they knew each other when they went to like acting school for prestigious <laughs> rich Irish kids. I, w- I was about to say, oh, does uh, does every person in Ireland know each other, Ollie? Uh, most of us do, yeah. <laughs> I probably taught them at some stage. <laughs> Uh, so the, uh, in, in this city, we also see basically that we have, uh, we have, uh, trouble in paradise in the alliance between Umbrasil and Kevdak, who is 
um, Grog's uncle, played by uncle. media yeah. evil MVP Ralph Bynson. So basically, Umbrasil, now assisted by Ripley, uh, are concerned that Kevdak is paying insufficient tribute. And because Ripley in particular, right, seems to have uh, be in the process of really trying to talk the dragons into prioritizing seeking these vestiges, Umbrasil basically says at this point, do better on the tribute or I'm taking the vestige, which is these, uh, yeah. these gauntlets that he is wearing. Mm-hmm. And we don't know exactly what they're collecting all of the gold for. Right. But it's suffice to say that it is not just dragons like gold. Right. The herd, meanwhile, is increasingly, it seems, discontented with the fact that they are then kind of working for these dragons. We hear a lot of mutterings. And in fact, uh, Grog's cousin, Kevdak's son, uh, challenges his father overtly. And uh, and Kevdak, you know, beats him pretty brutally. I definitely thought he was dead. Yeah. It turns out he's not dead, but like he's not doing great. Yeah. And Grog. I, I think he would have been dead if um, Grog hadn't showed up at that point. Yes, and Grog shows up, still uh, lacking, ha- having not recovered his strength, that shows up and challenges his uncle. Yeah, and uh, I, a couple of times throughout the last couple of episodes, you haven't mentioned it. Grog has had little flashbacks to his time in fighting the guy yeah. in the um, the Stormlords arena. And uh, and the guy keeps saying to him and reminding him. The question is, where does your strength come from? Where does your strength yes. come from? Yes, yes. So and he will. We will get the kind of big moment of that in the next episode. So and this is where I thought the season had finished, which was Grogsha. <laughs> yeah, like, this would have no, been a rough no, end to the season. Yeah, nothing about the Chroma Clonclave has been solved. Uh, Ripley is just shown to be evil, and the party are still separated. And Grog walks into what is almost certain doom at this point. Right. And you're like, oh, wait, what's going on mm. here? Um, yeah, and as, as you said, we, we find out that Scanlan has a daughter. And um, that's it. Like, that's where yes. we were. We're like, well, give me more. And then... Right. Yeah, or no, we, we don't even find out the daughter thing episodes. in that episode. We just meet her. Oh, yeah, it's in the next episode. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the next episode, a lot happens in the next episode. So, Keyleth, Vex, Vax, and Percy... Get back to Whitestone. Uh, initially, they're like, where the fuck is Whitestone? It turns out it's hidden by a cloaking spell. And also that uh, three weeks has passed in Taldore, while only three days had passed in the Fey Realm. And I think one of them is like, I fucking hate the Fey Realm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's fair. Uh, so they then uh, start heading to Western because uh, they're able to like see in a, you know, a vision or something uh, that, uh, or like, I don't know, some sort of magic globe. I can't remember what it was, but they're able to like see that their friends are yeah. in Western. So they head out there. Uh, Grog then, you know, has, has challenged his uncle to the single kept, to the single, com- <laughs> the single kept deck. Um, single combat. Single kept deck. With Kevdak. Single kept deck combat. And so the, <laughs> the two of them are fighting. Uh, Grog isn't doing great. Uh, and then as, you know, Pike and Scanlan then kind of come up and start helping. And when Pike is about to be killed by Kevdak, Grog realizes that his strength comes from his friends and he regenerates his muscles and, uh, is, and the, the fight becomes now, uh, somewhat less one-sided. Yeah. So it was one-sided before because Grog was weak. And Kevdak has the gantlets. Uh, yes. Yeah, but he, he wasn't even really using the power of the gauntlets yeah. at this stage. So when Grog 
gains his power back. Um, he's much more of a, a close to one to one fighter with Kevdak, but Kevdak also has the gauntlet. Yeah, so Kevdak so, like doubles in size uh, at this point. Yeah, you know the gauntlets also have like lightning power. Like the gauntlets, the gauntlets uh, are very helpful. It's a really good scene because as soon as Kevdak, like all bullies, as soon as Kevdak feels like there's any sort of actual challenge to him, he turns into relying on the tricks and the trick he has is that he has the gauntlet so up until this point when he was able to easily beat the weakened and and weakling version of grog he didn't need to use them as soon as there's any sort of challenge he turns them on and as you said he grows to at least twice as big his muscles get much stronger and every time he punches something it breaks a wall yeah so Vex has this this locket that actually Zara gave to her that previously the monster that petrified people had been in. And she's been using it for Trinket as a way to mm-hmm. conveniently and easily carry him around. And she lets Trinket out and then uses that to, uh, she actually puts Grog in it and then flies up on her broomstick and then uh, releases Grog. And Grog then is able to, from a great height, come down with his axe and uh basically uh cut kevdak in half yeah so he falls from the sky drops down and uses all of that momentum which again very physically very proper um the view of the physics of the scene I, I would praise in the physics of this scene, is able to cut him straight to the thing. And also, what I like about this is, Grog is badly injured in this fall. <laughs> like yes. He has broken legs and broken arms and stuff like this here. And he's like looking over at Kev, obviously Kevdak's been cut in two and is dead. Mm-hmm. But Grog is, Grog is in a bad way. So looking enough, Pike is there to, to do a little bit of healing. Yes. Buddies. Yes. Thank goodness. So we're celebrating uh, Grog is, you know, acclaimed initially as the leader of the herd, but he's got other shit to do. And so uh, he suggests that, you know, Xanror, uh, his cousin, is now going to take over. So that's nice. They agree they're all going to help kill the and dragon. He had had a fight with Xanror yes. back when he was saving Pike as a baby and beat the shit out of Xanror, uh, leading to Kevdak beating the shit out of him and casting him out of the group. Yes. And this is also where uh, Kaylee and Scanlan go off together to a bedroom, presumably, we initially assume, to have sex. And she ties Mm -hmm. him to the bed. And then she's like, actually, I'm your daughter. Mm -hmm. And she looks like she's about to kill him. Yeah. Or castrate him, one or the other. Uh, and the next episode, so we begin with Scanlan being like, oh, I feel so bad and like telling this horse whole story about this like woman that he actually did genuinely really cared about and he feels really bad to have ditched her and like gives him a number of specific details, including a name. And I'm watching this whole thing. I'm like, that's not going to be her mom. Sure enough, uh, that is absolutely <laughs> not her mother. And he goes through like six names and can't even come up with her name. Yeah, because Scanlan gets around. This was Scanlan gets around. Episode. Yeah, so so basically the next, uh, and again, I like that they take like the dragons like seriously as foes. Essentially, the next two episodes uh, are basically fighting um, Umbrasil. Fight. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the kind of extended fight. Uh, they start by they have this like trap that Percy has set up. The trap is not actually totally sufficient. Uh, you know, he's able to break free of it. Um, mm-hmm. Scanlan and Vax uh, as a way of. Uh, basically trying to keep him from flying have the idea that they're going to uh 
enter through his anus because you can't enter mm-hmm. through the mouth because uh, through the mouth there's a lot of acid coming out, but you can enter through the other end. And they do that uh, and use this like enchanted sword to keep him keep him from flying for a bit. Yeah, so basically it's the uh, it's the vestige and it's holding him down because it I, I can't remember if they're saying it's just increasing his mass so much or that they can use it to echolocate or to locate sorry, not to echo to locate to transport. So they are fixing him in the same position with this sword. Yes, uh, and and he will eventually manage to fly off by basically like forcing the sword further through his own body. Uh, and mm-hmm. so it's no longer kind of pinning him in the same way. Uh, and so he then flies off. Vax and Scanlan are inside him, and then Grog uh, kind of lo- uh, kind of like lodges his axe tied to a rope in his back. And so as he flies off, he's got Grog uh, tailing behind him Hanging as well. Hanging from the back, yeah. yeah. And it's again another really good action scene, and it's also consistent with how powerful every character has been the yeah. whole way through vex is trying with his new skills keela is trying with her new powers but the dragons it's... are incredibly strong yeah. and umbrazil is probably the third strongest of the three yeah so it wouldn't make sense at this stage for them to be able to take down all of the chroma conclave so yeah and i really like that Umbrazil, who is this strong yeah and uh when we do also in that episode we get uh, Vax communing with the matron of ravens and kind of a you know embracing his new status as his champion. Uh, we also get Vex kind of trying half-heartedly to have like the feelings talk with Keyleth, who's clearly like kind of scared of her and absolutely does not want to have that talk with her. Mm. It's great. Vex is like, tell me about your uh, you and my brother, and uh, she's like, nope, absolutely fucking not. Like, oh, uh, yeah, go great. Uh, Hard uh, no. Uh, don't kill me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so they next episode, uh, Grog kind of has a, a good go of it, trying to kind of stay stay attached, but does eventually end up getting through. I mean, essentially, like the dragon basically like launches him into a mountain. Um, yeah, and and this is again the second time in two episodes where Grog gets really badly injured right and Pike kind of just manages yeah. to heal him but like not but like because already she's like she's just like used up a lot of her healing magic and so she has kind of a limited limited abilities and so like he's still very very far from being at his best um they and uh Scanlan and Vax end up basically kind of cutting their way out and uh rejoining the others and yeah, and they're thinking about running off and trying to regroup and at this stage, I, I can't... Is it Scanlan who says, this is actually our time to go? Like, this is our best chance. I think it is. Been because like, we can, and they're like, oh, well, it's because, you know, we're injured, but so is he. Uh, turns out that's not totally true. Umbrasil can, like, do a full recovery in moments in his lair. Heal, yeah. So they and arrive. he's actually waiting for them. Yes, they yeah. arrive to a waiting and much stronger now Umbrasil. And uh, this is also then, you know, we get like Scanlan with like his like big moment, right, where he's like, you know, thinking about, you know, wanting to be the person who his daughter could respect. And as all of the others get incapacitated, Scanlan had been like kind of hiding behind a rock about to run away. And then he manages to get a hold of Mythcarver of the sword and stabs it into Umbrasil's eye. And plays a little tune, which produces this big blast of energy. Yes. And that basically kills. Effectively, he stabs him and shoots him in the eye at the same time, and it kills Umbrasil. Yes, so 
they win. Uh, and initially they think Scanlan's dead uh, while Pike is trying to heal him. And then he reveals that he is in fact alive and uh, they, he and Pike kiss. I'm not 100% sure how I feel about that whole relationship. I'm not totally sure I'm here for it. Mm. I'm not totally sure that. Uh, and again, not, not related to the series at all. I'm not into it at all. Um, Pike seems like a really nice character and uh, and like a really good pure soul and Scanlan is not and I Scanlan I doesn't seem like he be... wants to settle down and Pike seems yeah. like she wants somebody who would be up to settle and down you... they feel very mismatched to me yeah and you mentioned it the last day when we were talking about Dungeons and Dragons it's a tired trope about the woman who settles down the rambunctious man right gets in to, to give up his adventurous and fun loving ways and the other thing that I will say also that I did really, I do really like about the Dungeons and Dragons movie is that they don't need to like neatly pair everybody off, right? Like not everybody yeah. ends up coupled up. And I don't love that it seems like as I like the romance is what really like rings weakest to me in general is that it yeah. feels like, and you know, and as I said, like Vax and Keyleth, I actually do kind of like, but other the other two couples I'm not that enthusiastic about as like couple pairings, but also even in addition to that, I don't love the aspect of like needing to have everybody like in fact heterosexually paired up. Like feels yeah. very and meh. if we if we think back to the D and D movie, what we really enjoyed was that Holga and Chris Pine's character don't um, end up together. Are just best yeah. buddies. Like, they're just best buddies and they're doing this. And that's what Pike and Grog are. Like, they're yeah. best buddies. And there's no, and like, you could make jokes about the fact that Grog is a giant and Pike, is, like, and just for the record, Pike is drawn very attractively. Oh, yeah. No, I think she's, she's I like, think she's for, very pretty. And I, you know, if she, yeah. if she would like a partner of whatever gender and size, I hope she finds them. She should go for it. But like, there's never any indication that Grog and Pike have had every anything other than no, a they're a really nice platonic relationship. I really, really like that. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So, as they are celebrating, uh, everybody except for Vox Machina and Keeper Yenin uh, fall well dead or asleep. It turns out they're asleep, and this mm-hmm. is because Yenin. She's, it's not like Raishan the dragon has like possessed Yenin, right? It's not that Yenin has always been. Yeah. She's, she's taken over. Yeah, she's basically. like taken over this body and basically says like, look, I'm not sure that I'm here for like Thorndack's weird plans anymore. And so I'm interested in a, in an alliance. I, I want to be a, I want to be a double agent dragon. Yeah, it's, um. It's like she's like, I want to I want to fight against this because this doesn't make sense what he's going for. Yeah. And again, there's still this idea that there's another big bad behind all of this because the big bad from the end of the first season is still out there. Still, right. That glowing black orb that, that started sucking in the priests at the end of the first one is still there. It's still there. And so, Thordak is, and most of the Chroma Conclave are also still very much around. And the last thing that we see is that Thordak is uh has in his lair a whole clutch of dragon eggs yeah baby dragon army they're gonna be baby dragon army or large army of dragons we're not sure and um what (laughs) we don't know if they're gonna be cute sarah how can they not be cute there's just babies 
Um, you, you're picturing your um, stuffed tim- timber show or timber mm-hmm. show. My timber show. Um, my who is Dolce's best friend. Yeah, that's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing the uh, the the plush dragon. That yes, uh, for for all listeners, please be aware that I bought a uh, plush of timber show, which is by the way uh, larger than I anticipated. And it's a very big. Plush. My cat and uh, the cat and Thember Show are about the same size. Like Dolce's a little taller, but Thember Show is like a lot wider. Um, a lot. So they are like I, saying comparable. they're roughly the same size is is doing like I think Dolce they're roughly a massive. Disservice. I think they're like roughly the same mass, maybe because Dolce is like a little taller and a little and a little longer, but Thember Show is uh, mm-hmm. significantly wider, and she yeah, is like boy. nonstop cuddling with the plush Thember Show. And it makes me incredibly happy. Yeah, and that's lovely. Yeah. And but that's where we end is with the Dragon Army, future Dragon Army ready to go, and um one of uh, Tordax minions going, I want to help Fox Machina to take him down. Yeah, so good good to move into the next season. Uh but we do not have the next season, so instead, we are going to talk about what they got right and wrong in a segment that we call as, as usual, when we talk about fantasy, they're making everything up. It's not real. There are dragons and giants, etc. They can do whatever the hell they want. But I'm going to chat about a couple of things that I thought sort of, uh, I guess, kind of interestingly didn't ring quite true to me. But then I'm going to just talk about some fun things about magical creatures or, well, creatures that appear that have magical functions, at least. And then I'm going to, uh, well, and then we'll, we'll do other things in the next segment. So, diplomacy. Um, Percy's really good at it. Per- Why does Percy not know how diplomacy works? So, um, yeah, in like actual medieval diplomacy or diplomacy ever, um, the way that you get an audience with the leaders of the city isn't by running up to the guards on the outskirts of the city. Those people are not particularly high status. They probably don't know the rulers of the city. They're just like low level mm. people in like, you know, they're like low level employees, essentially. You know, it's like you, you know, walk into, um, now I'm trying to like think of a good ex- it's like you walk into an Amazon warehouse and say and like ask the guy like packing the boxes can I talk to Jeff Bezos <laughs> and of course he will take you straight up to yeah Jeff. and of course it's gonna take you straight to Jeff uh <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like essentially the equivalent to that. So ideally, uh, letters should have been sent in advance. But honestly, if that hasn't happened, which obviously it hasn't, then in fact, what he actually should have known was that the fact that in fact, the idea that actually makes most sense is to go directly to their, you know, palace or, you know, meeting site or whatever. And, uh, uh, you know, introduce himself at that stage, right? And kind of establish himself as somebody who, you know, has this noble status and that therefore they should take him seriously and negotiate and with him. And they would want to talk to him, hopefully, at that point. But there's yeah. still no guarantee that they would. And there's still no guarantee, right? And it does... The Rolo yeah. name, even though they had to save stuff, the Rolo name is still probably mud in most places yeah. of Tal'Darill. I mean, it makes sense for him to use it on the grounds that it's the arguably, I mean, it, well, I don't know, actually. On the one hand, arguably, is it the best, like, basis for negotiation that they have? On the one hand, maybe. On the other hand, 
I guess I also don't know how fast news has traveled, but didn't they just like officially like do the kind of big like award and announcement about like how honored Vox Machina is? I kind of wonder if actually it would be better off to negotiate just from the basis of being Vox Machina. But they were in the middle of doing that when the Chroma Clonclave. That's true. Chroma Clonclave attacked. So there was no real chance for that word to yeah. get out because all of the people who were there were killed. Yeah, so the Dorolo name actually might be the uh, the best that they've got in terms of kind of establishing a reason that they should care about these people as opposed to anybody else coming and, you know, asking for aid. But as you said, and, it as is a kid of limited up, power. Yeah, as a person who grew up in that realm he, or like that cast of society you should have known you yeah. can't just ramp up to the garage and go i demand an audience exactly. with the leader of this city exactly so like that's very silly is that it's this kind of weird it's not how diplomacy would have really worked it clearly isn't also it's clearly also not how diplomacy works in this universe and it's very odd that percy who as you said right grew up as this very privileged person who would have existed within this world of you know upper level diplomacy it's very odd that he would have like not known how to go about doing this in at least like the best possible way given their position uh the temples the other thing that i found was odd is that the temples in vasselheim so arguably basically they're like you know we're we're kind of just focusing on our own shit and are kind of you know maintaining this sort of isolationist neutrality uh i will just note that that um does not represent the reality of say the church in the middle ages Uh, That the idea Mm -hmm. that religious institutions are, you know, neutral or isolated from politics is uh, simply not correct. The church is intervening constantly in politics and the two are very deeply intertwined, which also, you know, makes sense when you think about the fact that, you know, the... A, you know, these social elites are like all, you know, related to one another, right? That it's like the younger sons of the nobility who are the ones that end up with the highest church positions. And so, you know, it's, it is all very, very much clearly intertwined. And so uh, the kind of representation of religious institutions as being kind of politically isolated uh, does not seem reflective of a medieval reality. Yeah, from everything I've come across from reading and looking stuff up and from listening to you over the last few years, the church was not taking a backseat in terms of whether or not countries were going to war. Like they were absolutely in a lot of cases, the instigators of why countries were going to war. Indeed. So this idea that Indeed. They, it's realistic that the church were like in their own city going, no, 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 we're not going, we're, we're going to stay neutral. Yeah. No, so doesn't that doesn't really make, make a great deal of sense. Um, the other thing is that I was just going to talk about some of the, uh, animal representation or, you know, mythical beasts, mythical-ish beast representation that we get in the series or in this season. Uh, first of all, the Sphinx. We're going to talk about Sphinxes? Yes, we're going to talk about Sphinxes. So, uh, Sphinxes, uh, are interestingly something that shows up, uh, very prominently both in Egyptian and Greek traditions. And uh, I actually find it fun that in this series, we have a pair of a female and a male sphinx. And in fact, the sphinx is typically depicted as female in Greek representations and typically depicted as male in Egyptian representations. Mm, So fun that we get that that. kind of combination. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize they showed up in Greeks. Obviously, we... Everyone knows about the Sphinx. The Sphinx, right? Um, we have, of course, the very kind of famous uh, image of the Sphinx from Egyptian art, right? That is uh, kind of located yeah. at the the. Um, I didn't realize that there the were pyramids. other Sphinxes. Yeah, so yeah, the, the Great Sphinx of Giza, right, is the 
uh, you know, striking representation of the Sphinx. The other, I would say, kind of around the Greek side, the most famous representation of the Sphinx is uh, is a literary one or a mythological one, and that is that the Sphinx, of course, plays a crucial role in the Oedipus story. Uh, so mm-hmm. Oedipus is uh, probably now best known for you know being the uh, the guy who killed his father and married his mother. Yeah. And so the deal with... Because as we know, he was from uh, Alabama. Yeah, you know. And... So essentially what the Sphinx is represented often as doing is the Sphinx basically is uh, the kind of like shows up and uh, is at a crossroads and uh, asks uh, kind of riddles or puzzles because the Sphinx is often associated with wisdom. And essentially you cannot pass unless you answer the riddle. Um, that the Sphinx yeah. asks of you. Um, so he answers uh, this uh, this riddle correctly. Um, so this is the uh, the riddle, which is, uh, and I'm trying to remember now exactly how it goes, but it's the uh, what creature has four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs in the evening, something along those lines. And it's man, because uh, man is crawling on all fours in the metaphorical morning of infancy, is standing on two legs in the metaphorical afternoon of, you know, adulthood, middle age, and and on three legs, so two legs plus a cane, in the uh, metaphorical yeah. evening of, the, of his life. Yeah, now, if a sphinx showed up and gave me that as a riddle, I would absolutely call foul. Like, come on, don't, the morning time. You mean when they're a baby? Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Shut up, Sphinx. Like, be a little bit more specific. Like, if you want the answer to be man, give me a clues that could actually make sense for all men and women at any stage. Like, but anyway, sorry. As much as stupid Sphinx with your stupid riddles. So he answers this riddle correctly, and this is what then enables him to, you know, go into Thebes, and he'll, like, become the king of Thebes and continue his problematic mm-hmm. destiny. Um, <laughs> so, you know. But, uh, but we do have this, right, kind of, like, wisdom element um yes associated with uh with the sphinx um i will say that the uh the sphinx isn't the most popular creature in uh medieval art and visual depictions but uh really takes off in the uh in the 15th and 16th century renaissance art yes renaissance art they they like the sphinx the other thing is that i wanted to talk about ravens and i found lots of fun things yes. about ravens I love ravens. Ravens are the best. Ravens are very cool. So They're so smart. Yeah, very smart. Uh, ravens are often linked with death because they are carrion birds. And a lot of people, when you most often see ravens, is when they are uh, eating corpses on the battlefield. Yeah. Uh, and so there are, interestingly, a lot of... Uh, a wide range, I guess one might say, of depictions of ravens, some of which are more positive and some of which are less so. So I found some hilarious stuff about the depictions of ravens. So if you read the Hebrew Bible, there's a raven in the Hebrew Bible. The raven is, in Mm -hmm. fact, the uh, first bird that Noah sends out from the ark to go and see if uh, there is land. And the raven eventually doesn't come back. And so, you know, that's the first, and that is actually pretty, you know, the first in the text, right? Is the first inkling that maybe in fact there is land is that, okay, if he didn't come back, right? Maybe he's like settled somewhere and doesn't need to yeah. be on this dumb ark. So uh, Midrash, which is basically Bible fan fiction. 
Well, in fairness... In the Jewish biblical tradition of interpretation. You described that as the New Testament as well, so... There's a lot of Bible. Yeah, Bible. the New Testament is Christian Bible fanfiction. Midrash is Jewish Bible fanfiction. Mm-hmm. So... Oh. Some Midrash suggested, there are some Midrash that suggested uh, the reason that the raven didn't come back, it was because it was too busy feeding on the corpses of those who died in the flood. <laughs> nice. Uh, and in the Babylonian Talmud, which is uh, a kind of combination of Midrashic stories and allegories and uh, legal material, includes this whole story, which is basically depicting the raven as uh, a real asshole. <laughs> so... <laughs> First, it says, okay, right, so he sent in the raven. He sent out the raven. And first, it has the raven as being this, like, whiny fuck who's like, why are you sending me out? It's, like, so rude and you hate me because uh, it actually does say in the Bible. So, you know, usually when we think about Noah's Ark, right, we usually kind of focus on the, you know, two of each species. What it actually says is that it's two of each species, but if an animal is a clean species, so if an animal is one that is eligible for being sacrificed, you actually should have seven because then you have extras for sacrifice. I think we might have talked about this before, yeah. Probably. Um, so because of that, the, so then the raven is like, yo, there's only two of us. There's, you know, still, I don't know, maybe you killed one, but there's still like five of them. Why don't you send out them instead of me? And then the raven's like, maybe you're just sending me because you want to Noah because you want to fuck my raven wife. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Noah was played by Russell Crowe, so. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Crowe. He's a... I thought you'd like that. Yep. <laughs> send the ra- send Noah. So there's this whole thing, right? That they kind of get into this claim, right? That in fact, despite the deliberate two by two element, in fact, uh, sexual intercourse on the Ark was not permitted. And uh, the and Noah's like, "What? Come on! I'm not even allowed to fuck my own wife. Clearly, I'm not fucking your wife." <laughs> <laughs> because, like, in general, I'm not supposed to fuck ravens. So obviously, I'm certainly if I'm not fucking my own wife, I'm certainly not fucking your wife. Uh, they also then go on to say, by the way, there were only three species that fucked while they were on the Ark. Um, or well, three groups. And, uh, it is the dog. Uh, the dog gets punished. The dog gets like subjugated, essentially. Uh, the raven, which is punished and the raven starts to spit. And then we have the nice racist touch that one of Noah's sons fucked Ham. And that's why Ham is black now. So we've got some uh, good quality racism right there. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yep. Not great. Not not good. <sighs> good stuff. Bible stories. Good stuff. And that I will note, you know, that is sometimes represented as like being in the Bible. It's really in like biblical interpretive traditions. It is actually like not really in the Bible. But, mm-hmm. you know. Um... We also have uh, medieval Christian bestiaries, which have like fun discussions about ravens. Uh, they first of all think that ravens refuse to feed their young until the until their feathers grow and become black, and at that point, the parents will recognize them as at their as their own. Um, and they also kind of go on about how, oh well, you know, when a raven eats a corpse, it first starts by pecking out the eyes so it can reach the brain. But this is believed to have a, a moral meaning. Uh, just mm. as the raven starts by pecking out the eyes, that's like how the devil starts by uh, plucking out our ability to judge correctly. And so you can attack the uh, the brain, attack our, attack our minds. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. 
However, the raven also has positive moments. Uh, ravens were believed to have protected the corpse of the fourth century martyr Saint Vincent of Saragossa. A raven also like protected it. Oh, yeah, we're no, protected like it. Saying, in fact, hey, so just... in like an interesting reversal, in an interesting reversal, uh, in an interesting reversal, actually, yes, to protect it essentially. Um, and also that, uh, ravens actually, like, uh, prevented a death that, like, Benedict of Nursia was going to, like, eat something that was poisoned and, like, a raven stopped him. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, and in, uh, the, uh, the Quran also includes the raven in the, uh, in their version of the story of Cain and Abel and explains that that's actually how Cain learned how to bury his brother's corpse is because he saw a raven Jesus. burying its maid and is like, ah, that's what I should do with my brother. Well, it makes sense. If it's good enough for a raven, it's good enough good for enough me. Good enough for me. So, yeah, I think it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting that the raven kind of has this association with death. And sometimes that comes out in terms of the raven being seen really negatively. Uh, but sometimes it is a kind of more positive or neutral reading. And which I think is interesting, given the, the figure of the matron of the ravens here, that there is some yeah. amount of like, yes, she's associated with death. But is that like a bad thing, per se? No. And yeah, I, I, it, it, this is a really standard thing in fantasy that ravens and death are associated with each other. Like, and yeah. it, it's interesting to find out that that's linked back as far back as the Bible and stories that came before and fan fiction that came afterwards. Yeah, and it, and it shows up in like Norse mythology as well. Like it shows up in all sorts of places in a way that kind of makes a lot of sense, given that for a lot of people, like when you saw ravens, you saw ravens because they showed up to eat corpses. <laughs> Yeah, and then... <laughs> it's like the main time you saw ravens. Uh, and there is also the the legend, the English legend, that there's the... Uh, I'm not, I, I didn't look it up. I'm actually not 100% sure how far it goes back, but there are the uh, the ravens at the Tower of London. And if the all of oh, the yeah. ravens ever leave, that is when England will fall. So Fingers if you would like to bring about the end of the British of the, uh, of, the <laughs> of the of the uh, of England, uh, you, should, you should go and kidnap some ravens. I'm just saying. Well, I like ravens too much to do that. I wouldn't want to harm them. You don't have to harm them. You could just kidnap them. You don't have to kill them. You could just kidnap them and, like, take them to Ireland. I mean, but they're English ravens, so they're probably pricks. (laughs) 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 That that raven that was given shit to Noah on the ark, that's probably an English raven. (laughs) What, you want to fuck my wife, Noah? (laughs) You want to fuck my wife, Noah? (laughs) I love the Talmud. (laughs) Hilarious. Uh, but I also have a kind of deep dive that I wanted to do uh, for uh, some other Ooh. kind of interesting historical connections or antecedents. And we could do that in a section that's uh, that's usually called Historia et Veritas. Yes, so Perfect. in today's Historia et Veritas, I want to talk about magical artifacts. Because we have our, our vestiges of divergence. So, you know, we have this focus, right, on this seeking out of magical artifacts. And that's, of I course... I love magical artifacts. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about, like, uh, like Jesus relics and stuff like this here. I just like the idea of that magic can somehow be just maintained within a sword or a shield or a, a breastplate. Like, I, I, it's just it's such a fascinating idea how people think that these would become stronger because somebody imbued them with magic. Yeah, and this is a very common concept in medieval literature uh, and in some of, you know, antecedents, of course, as well. Uh, Arthurian legend loves magical artifacts. 
Excalibur. Oh, absolutely. Obviously, the, the, the most obvious, the Holy Grail, right? Again, very obvious. Uh, I will note we're going to talk more about this as we go on, but the Holy Grail is uh, one of many examples of ways in which as we kind of, and well, as we kind of move into a Christian period, right, that, or well, okay, I'm going to step back. The Holy Grail is actually then one of many examples of ways in which magic and religion are also deeply intertwined. So a lot of mm -hmm. the ideas about magical artifacts come from also, you know, pre-Christian um, polytheistic contexts that we have a lot of examples of magical artifacts. So Greco-Roman mythological tradition has a lot of magical artifacts, uh, things that are perhaps owned or used by the gods, uh, things that various mortal heroes uh, get to carry. And so, you know, all sorts of mythical artifacts of various kinds that we see in the Greco-Roman mythological tradition uh, and in the Norse mythological tradition as well. Uh, which, of course, would have also been influential in certain regions in the Middle Ages. Uh, and I will Excellent. note in particular that when I was kind of doing a little bit of research about this, that uh, one particular Norse artifact has a fun connection to the show, that uh, the god Thor has these iron gauntlets that he uses to handle his hammer. So uh, cool that we have in this show these uh, magical gauntlets that are then associated with lightning when we have this example in a mythological tradition of, you know, gauntlets that are linked with the, the god of thunder. Hmm, that's cool. Yeah. So Grog has got Grog Thor's is gauntlets. Thor. You heard it here first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so yes, Arthurian legend, right? We uh, we have then Excalibur. Or sorry, we have Excalibur, which I already mentioned. But then also, as I said, that we have the whole as you were you brought up the Holy Grail as an example then of how in the Christian tradition there is also uh, continues to be a link between objects that are magical because of some kind of religious connection, right? That the Holy Grail is of course the they're meant to be the uh, cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper. Um, and that is where its power comes from. And I'll talk more about that uh, category of magical artifacts in a moment. Uh, another famous one from uh, Arthurian tradition that has previously come up on this con on this podcast is the girdle. Huh, received it's, it's, it's previously what, sir? Discussed. Oh, discussed. Sorry, because you did say come up. And I was just thinking that's a very <laughs> interesting choice of words. The, uh, the girdle received by Gawain in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, or uh, one of the contexts of the film I referred to repeatedly as the cum encrusted girdle, because it yes, sure you is. Did. And you're, I knew you were going to do it. And I you knew brought you were it up. Keep going. You brought it up. Uh, it is less cum encrusted in the poem, <laughs> I would describe it. Uh, but in, uh, in the, in both, there is a, in both the poem and in the film inspired by it, there is this claim made that the girdle will keep the wearer from being killed, right? So this object that has in yeah. it this particular supposed magical power. Um, there are, a, there is a strong link in a lot of these traditions between magical artifacts, so things that have power and that also are specifically used as weapons, uh, or as military attire. Yeah, a lot of them seem to be that way. Yeah, there's a lot like of that. swords, a lot of bows, a lot of shields, a lot of armor. And uh, this is also, there's, you know, kind of links as well in various other literary traditions that there are swords that, even if they're not quite as overtly magical, there's still some kind of implication that there's something special or some kind of power that they have. Uh, there's a lot of named swords. So like El Cid, the swords aren't exactly magical, but they kind of go out of their way to name his swords. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the same as, you know, in the Chanson de Roland, they're also like the swords always get names. Uh, we, you know, so we, we kind of have that kind of interesting tradition, right, of really emphasizing like weapons as being magical or mystical in some ways. Uh, Beowulf too, right? There are these like magic, you know, swords that are claimed to have these kind of special abilities. These magic powers yeah. and they make you stronger, to make you faster, yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, However, I also would like to note kind of in terms of the sort of religious connection uh, is that there is also the kind of magical artifacts that then become quite important in Christian tradition, which are relics are essentially a form of magical artifacts. So Mm. a relic is for anybody who is not familiar with medieval history or Catholicism, uh, a relic is uh, you can either have a bodily relic or a contact relic. A bodily relic is, yep. of course, a physical remain of a saint. So, and you you went to see uh, Saint Valentine's skull. Yes. Yeah, so I I every year on Valentine's Day because I am a heartless bitch. I post the skull of Saint Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> For example. Uh, which one can go and see. Uh, I've seen lots of skulls. Uh, and, you know, and these things, all like a lot of these, by the way, you know, have, have been tested. So some of them are things where, you know, they're from like medieval saints and we have enough of a kind of record of uh, transmission that we are pretty sure like, okay, like this is, uh, you know, so my, my bestie, Catherine of Siena. You can uh, go to uh, Siena. <laughs> With their foreskin ring. Uh-huh. So I'll talk more about the foreskin in a moment. So like Catherine of Siena, you know, she, she died in Rome, but her head and finger were sent to Siena, uh, which is where she was from. And uh, her foot, one of her feet was uh, sent to Venice. Uh, different places have different traditions. So I would say in, uh, in a lot of places, like in Italy in particular, you'll often see reliquaries which have a uh, glass casing. And so you can like see, ah, yes, that's, that sure is somebody's mummified head. So just uh, randomly with this, um, in terms of, uh, this Christian saint idea, um, this idea of uh, this person is so holy that we're not going to inter their body. We're going to cut them up into pieces and send them to different cities. Like, does that is that not counterintuitive with the the whole Catholic religion thing anyway? As long as you don't destroy the body parts, I mean, God can handle resurrecting like your resurrection, and He's got to like pull your head from a different location. Yeah. Well, you never know. Like, I mean, He's a busy dude. <laughs> But, like, these are, like, the top people. Like, this isn't just anybody. Like, these are saints. Yeah. Imagine he couldn't find one of your feet. You're like, fuck. And you had to fuck where they put it. Catherine is resurrected. Fuck and who took her feet. One foot, like. um, but there is some, like, grotesquerie about it of, like, fighting over relics. And there's this bit where they're, like, in um, the writings of Gregory of Tours where there's, like, he's, like, I don't know, like, two fucking, like, bishops or something who are, like, fighting over some guy's arm bone and, like, ripping it in half. Which is actually kind of a win-win situation because even the smallest bone chip has power. Uh, And that's the thing, right? Is that this is the idea behind both these bodily relics and contact relics, which are the things that the saint touched, is that these then can have, you know, healing power. These are things that, you know, you can kind of connect with. And by touching, they can allow you to kind of have a kind of more intense access to God and to have your prayers heard, uh, that you would uh, kind of pros- you would kind of do processions through the streets bearing these relics, right? And that would be a kind of good way to get God to intercede to you know stop the Black Death or something like that, um, yeah, or you course. know protect it's your city from a natural disaster. Death. 
Uh, and so, yeah. you know, these are thought to have real power. Uh, I will just, of course, because it's me and uh, I need to gratuitously always mention this. Um, so we have a lot of these bodily relics of various saints. You mostly cannot have bodily relics of Jesus because, you mm -hmm. know, Jesus was bodily assumed into heaven. So we do have a lot of contact mm -hmm. relics of Jesus. Uh, one of the, you know, the jokes about the proliferation of relics in the Middle Ages is that there's like enough splinters of the true cross, the cross on which Jesus was crucified <laughs> to like make a whole tree. Yeah, <laughs> which is true. Uh, there's also like the crown of thorns was a big deal relic that uh, at some point ended up in the possession of Louis the Ninth of France. The uh, the beautiful building, the Sainte Chapelle, was actually built as essentially a like giant reliquary to hold the crown of thorns. Just to hold the yeah. crown of thorns. And where has that gone now, or is is that lost to? Uh, no, I believe it actually. Hmm, I actually should check up to check on what happens to it because I believe it actually was being held in uh, in Notre Dame. I hope it. I put, made it through the fire. <laughs> Well, it was made out of wood, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I should I should double check uh, if it if somebody managed to uh, to get it out. Um, but you know, but also it's like he uh, like for the French kings would like pick off little thorns and send it to their king friends. <laughs> Have a thorn. Have a thorn. Oh my God! This is a thorn that went into Jesus. Huh. Yes, it is. Oh, you're the best, King Louis. <laughs> But uh, there is, of course, also is uh, one bodily relic of Jesus. And that bodily relic There's of Jesus is, bit. of course, the foreskin of Christ. Because if mm -hmm. Jesus, Jesus, as a you know good Jewish boy, would have been circumcised at eight days old. And so the foreskin would have been uh, removed from his body long before his death. <laughs> and so uh, there were, of course, several churches that claimed to have the foreskin of Christ. Several. There's always several. Um, the way also Such I would a... I would describe relics, by the way, is that there's a lot where like you might say um, that's certainly somebody's arm. So when it's like the saints <laughs> that died during the Middle Ages, like generally it probably is like those saints remains. But when you say like I have like the arm of like the apostle so and so like you have somebody's arm. Um, yeah, you've got an arm. There's no way that we can say for certain that it is the arm of St. Francis. And in particular, right, there's a, a, so I'm very, very excited to go see this. In Cologne, there's this whole, like, chapel basically made out of bones that I'm going to uh, to see in person for the first time this summer. I'm going to be in Cologne for a conference. And uh, oh, awesome. so this is, yes, this is the chapel associated with St. Ursula. And, be, and like, there's, there's this, like, fuck ton of bones that they used to basically build the chapel that they all kind of found in this, like, mass grave basically and are like oh it must be uh ursula and her eleven thousand virgin companions well uh we've uh, <laughs> we've tested some of these bones and uh at least some of the bones have been confirmed that she belonged to uh men and to dogs oh shit so probably not uh ursula's eleven thousand virgins <laughs> do you mean some of those virgins could have been trans uh, so yeah, so relics are obviously a kind of big example of magical objects that are around in the Middle Ages. Uh, and to make a kind of note of connection that uh, they also could be linked with other kinds of magical objects. So, uh, or, you know, special or like special objects. So actually in the Chanson de Roland, uh, the traitor Ganelon is said to have uh, sworn an oath on his sword, which actually had relics located in the pommel. Uh, this is, of course, a, a false Ooh, oath, and this is one fancy. of the ways that, you know, you you know that he's terrible is that he, you know, swears his false oath. Yeah, so he lied. Yeah. Um, while swearing on something which was actually a saintly object. Yeah. 
Yeah. Tisk tisk. Scumbag. Tisk tisk. <laughs> and he sided with the Muslims. So, you know. Well, yeah, he also did that. He would realize we're second... a Muslim, so that's a different whole thing. They were Basques, but whatever. Yeah. We're not going to. That's too much to get into. Yeah, but Basque isn't a region anymore, anyway. <laughs> it's not a country anymore. Well, no, but so, they'd like to be. It's still a region. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, after that deep dive, in our next section, we talk about a idea that we might have for a film or other piece of media inspired by this one, a section that we call... Fabulanostra. Sarah, do you want me to go first? Sure. Perfect. Uh, so I was thinking about ChatGBT this week. <laughs> oh, God. And since this is called Vox Machina... I have decided that it would be a good idea if we had like a little anthology series where we just fed a prompt into chat GBT, GPT, and then we just uh, took the story that came out of it and then turned it into like a little animated uh, adventure. So that's my version of Vox Machina. So the voice from the machine is chat GBT pointing out these medieval stroke Dungeons and Dragons stories. And then we would turn them into like a a show. And they can be voiced by all of the cast from... Um, Vox Machina, the actual series, because they're all incredibly talented voice actors, and I just want to see what um, what a, a tool like Chat GPT would actually be able to produce. So that's what yeah. I want to do. It, it's just a small thing, and for anybody listening, this will really age the podcast. And when it was recorded, the Chat GPT happens to be big in the news at the minute. But yeah, that's how it works. Man, I'm so sick of talking about Chat GPT, but yeah, that'll be. I think that would be interesting. But yeah, but also I will note, mm. ChatGPT, one of its many failings, uh, my friend asked it about the uh, the ring that Catherine of Siena wore in her mystical marriage with Jesus, and it like made up some bullshit about a metal ring. So like, if ChatGPT <laughs> like, can't even like, you know, get the foreskin of Christ, like, what's the point of it? Boring, yeah, ChatGPT, exactly. boring. Uh, <laughs> what were you and your friends doing? <laughs> you know, my, my friends, my friends from God School are excellent what, and do great things. What would we do? Chat GPT. Let's ask it about Jesus's force. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, where I, what I'd like to see is, um, I think it would be fun to uh, have, I guess, a kind of deep dive into the uh the matron of ravens so um right now actually i'm reading the novel stone blind by natalie haynes which is like the backstory of medusa and one of my favorite things that i've read in uh, relatively recently is madeline miller's circe uh so which is you know the kind of backstory of circe right and i think that there are these kind of really cool like things that are like is that what that is sarah yes Um, shockingly enough as opposed to just filth it's not um, that much which filth. Which is what it actually is. It's only a little it's filth. filth, Sarah. Sarah, it is filthy. It's not that much filth. That, that book is horned up. I can... It's not that filthy. And Song for Achilles, or Song of Achilles, is even more filthy. And I, this is a recommendation, everybody. It is filthy. You want to get, get up on that because it's filthy. <laughs> Song of Achilles also, I, yeah, Song of Achilles also was excellent because all of the reviews are like, how are they gay? And I'm like, haven't you read the Iliad? Anyway. Uh, I remember reading that as well. And they're like, I, I can't believe they made Achilles gay. Nobody made him anything. That guy was fucking loving that. It's like, y'all read the Iliad. Read the fucking Iliad. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, my cousin died. I have to go in a violent rampage 
to to avenge him. And we all do that for our cousins. Right. So, yeah. So, anyway. The original Petrocles, the original fridging. <laughs> actually, yes. Um, that is a... And actually also the original uh, Bury Your Gaze. Mm, True. 100%. They knew what they Actually. Doing. Homer. Although, there's a lot of fridging, actually, in Greek literature. Like, of, of women Tons as well. Like, there's, like, constant fridging. Iphigenia. Oh, exactly. Good, yeah. good example of fridging. Yeah, there's just so much of it. Like, it's it's actually hilarious that people didn't realize that it was a problem mm. up until, like, somebody actually pointed it out. We're like, you know, fridging is bad. Yeah. You what? <laughs> anyway, sorry. Anyway, go, go back but uh, anyway, inspired by, like, these things that I feel like I've, like, seen a lot of and I think are being done in really cool ways, I think it would be fun to have something that was, like, the, like, backstory of the patron of Ravens. Because I think she seems awesome. Yeah. <laughs> She does seem awesome. And I, like, any time I come across um, a goddess or a god of death in fantasy in any sort of description, I, I always just find it so interesting. Like, like the different takes on it. And in this case here, she she just, she doesn't seem to be malevolent, but she doesn't seem to be benevolent either. So she's just kind of like, yeah, um, <laughs> let's say ambivalent. Yeah. But, um, yeah, about taking souls. But she, she definitely knows that this is what she, what she wants to collect yeah. she wants to collect as many and souls as possible and she's got a job i also think it's cool she's like the she's the matron of ravens like she's a fucking grown-up not one of these teens <laughs> not one of these cool teens <laughs> now that i'm in my like late 30s i'm like eh. i'm like we need we need more fucking she's adults matron okay yeah she's the matron she's of charge. ravens yeah she's not the fucking maiden of ravens bullshit she's the matron of ravens She's the goddamn girl boss of Ravens. <laughs> exactly. So, anyway, so that's what I want. I want the matron of Ravens backstory. Perfect. Okay. So our final real segment, where we rate this piece of media on a scale of one to five, based on whatever purely subjective criteria we see fit, is a segment called... Estimatio. <laughs> so, I think i think i'm gonna go a 4.5 i actually think overall even liked this better than the previous season because i really liked getting to do more of a kind of deep dive and backstory and arc for like more of the characters in this ensemble cast and that was something that i really enjoyed and something that was a kind of like meh for me in the first season um so i think i think i'm actually gonna go up i think i'm gonna go 4.5 excellent i um I totally see why you would. I am going to go with four out of five again, I think. I enjoyed it as much as I did the last time. Um, I think the story is very strong. I like the way that they separated out um, into different characters and different characters got their own specific little storylines this time. Like, I feel like I know more about Pike. I definitely know more about Keyleth than I yeah. did before. I know more about Fax and Vex's backstory. And the first season was... <clears throat> very much dominated by Percy. The only thing that I think is a drawback to this one is now the story seems so big. And whereas the first one, mm-hmm. there was a concentrated specific villain. And I think the villains were better yeah. in the first season. Um, the Ravenwoods, as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, I see that. The, the, the con- Chroma Conclave yeah. seem... Why am I stumbling over my words today? So the Chroma Conclave... <laughs> The Chroma Conclave are very interesting, but so extremely overpowered. 
that I don't feel that like and I get it that they're going to build up and build up and get stronger and stronger and stronger and I've been saying that the whole way through the episode but yeah for me for me they don't just seem as interesting in terms of villains I think maybe because we don't know anything about what Thorbard or Thorbard wants Thordak. to do at this stage Thordak <laughs> yeah what he wants to do with this is I can't it's an insult to Lance Reddick's that. memory Ollie <laughs> it is I know I feel bad Lance you're brilliant brilliant performer um yeah uh yeah so i'm not really sure what his big motivation or goal is and it came it just came across a little bit weaker than the ravenwoods but other than that there it's just as every bit as good as the first one so i'm going to give it four out of five again um and i would absolutely happily watch another season of this i also think that this could be my own prejudice coming through i'm i'm just not necessarily a massive fan of animated stuff mm. and um I, I find that I get I feel like I get more bored watching an animated show than I would a regular show and I'm not sure what that is I maybe it's just the the fact that I'm slightly colorblind so uh, <gasps> stuff just doesn't jump off the mm-hmm. screen to me as much when it's uh, it's colored like that but yeah um yeah I have to I'll just be honest with you I I really enjoyed it I would watch another ten seasons of this if it's a, if it continues at the standard and. All of the people who do critical role are fantastic voice actors, so you're not losing out yeah. in any way by watching. Yeah, this. and I and I will say just as the last thing, I I do I do very much see what you're saying about the villains, and I do also like that um, Silas and is her name Delilah. Yes, Delilah. Uh, Delilah and Silas. That yeah. they're they're more sort of grounded villains in a lot of ways. Uh, the dragons are very just like, well, they are evil for that is their birthright. And you kind of don't know yeah. what their goal is, but it does kind of seem like we're kind of leading to what their goal is. And I do like the aspect of them as a group of big bads that you can't just defeat in a season. I think that's a cool aspect because I mean, especially because I feel like that's become such a trope that, you know, like the, bu- yeah. like the Buffy, like each season has to have it's like single season, big bad. Right. And then everybody defeats them, and then we move on. And then on. we move on, and then the next season yeah. we have a new big bad. And uh, yeah. I feel like that, you know, has very much become, like, the trope of a lot of kind of, like, fantasy kind of series. And so I do think that's a cool element to that, like, we don't have the, like, one big bad per season exactly in, uh, in terms of where yeah. they're going with the Chroma Conclave. Yeah, that is actually good. It makes it, as you said, it's it's nice to think that they can't just solve everything in one, one file swoop because they're, yeah. they're just not strong enough to take on three dragons. Yeah, and like you, and you get like a resolution, right? That like we like we kill one dragon, we get to kind of celebrate, we get to you know, and but then we also know, right, that there's like still problems that we have not fixed everything, basically. So yeah, yeah exactly. Perfect. Yeah. So Ollie, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's always a pleasure, sorry. Always. Are there places where the listeners can find you on the internet? As ever, you won't find me on the internet, but I do uh, show up in podcasts from time to time. Um, and I'm currently doing a, an extended stint as um, a guest, uh, a, a, a monthly guest on <laughs> Judging Book Covers. Oh, um, you're a co-host. And Stephanie. I'm not a co-host. I'm a permanent guest host, which is a different thing. A guest host in residence, shall we say? <clears throat> and um, yeah, so we we it's a bi- it's a monthly book club where we take a book, we read through it, and we discuss it uh, in in quite 
I was going to say in depth, but considering that we just spent three hours talking about, I told you this wasn't going to be quick. I told Megan, you. I knew. I knew it wasn't going to be either, but I tried. I did try. Um. Uh. Yeah. I can't even say we do talk about it that in depth, but we go through books and we. It's about opening yourself up to different genres and stuff. I will obviously have read a ton of fantasy, but we're learning, or I'm learning to read cozy mysteries and Stephanie's learning to embrace horror and Megan's learning to embrace stuff that isn't young adult novels. Sorry, Megan, I, I always have to throw you under the bus for this because you do love YA novels. But we're we're all learning to read these different genres and appreciate them for what they are. Like I, I said, I wouldn't have read Cozy Mysteries since I was a little kid and it's nice to be able to read them now. We read a horror book um, called The Paul Bearers Club um, in the last month. And uh, yeah, I, I, we haven't recorded it yet, but I feel it's going to be an interesting discussion. Mm, looking forward to it. So that episode will be out around about the time that this one oh, comes out. Great. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review, preferably on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow Media Evil on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Ollie, thank you for returning briefly from your exile. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Sarah. It's always nice to see other people. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for having me on. I would like to say that uh, in the future, I might uh, want to come back and discuss the French version of The Three Musketeers Mm. with Eva Green, Mm. if we could, because um, I've heard nothing but good things about it. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. We do, I will say, but before this episode comes out, we have another Three Musketeers related material. Ooh, interesting. I love it. Yeah. So thank you again and thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.